KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit.
you have to do is tune it to 89.5 FM. KOPN Columbia. Hi, it's Mike, and it's Radio Orbit. On a Monday night, as always, October the 9th, 2006. Pleasure to be with you this evening, and glad you're here with me. All right, so like I said, the 9th of October tonight, our guest, Jonathan Zapp from zaporacle.com. We'll have Jonathan on the phone in uh, 55 minutes or so, so stick around. going to be great conversation with Jonathan tonight. Before I tell you a little bit more about the show, let me say thank you to Debbie Johnson, as always, Free Range Radio Theater, Monday at 10 p.m. every week, just before this program. And next week, great stuff coming up from H.P. Lovecraft, so try to tune in. Listen to Debbie every week, 10 p.m., Free Range Radio Theater right here on the Mighty Fine 89. Before that, Kelvin and Jason. As always, jazz plus blues equals weirder and weirder. Actually, tonight, uh, I didn't hear much of Kevin's side of the show, but uh, Jason actually played some some great stuff during his half of the program. Tech Radio before that, always great stuff on Tech Radio. Jeff Wheeler coming on 3 p.m. until 5. Getting things going for us every Monday with Uncommon Light, and on through the night, coming up, Cheryl Wheeler, or uh, Cheryl Clapton, I should say, Cheryl Wheeler, uh, what do you think about that, Jeff? Anyway, Cheryl Clapton, coming up at uh, 2 a.m. after this program, and she'll be taking you through the morning, okay? All right, big thanks to Dr. Alan Goldstein, the world of nanobiotechnology, last week, amazing program with Dr. Alan, as always, uh, interesting stuff coming to us. From uh, from Dr. Goldstein. All right, uh, talk about weirder and weirder. My God, uh, remarkable, transformative technology on the way, or I don't know, effectively here, I guess. Uh, the question, as always, what are we going to transform into? So, I don't know, but if you if you didn't hear the Alan Goldstein stuff, it's worth a listen. All right, on the web, if you missed the show. Uh, also, uh, by the way, we had wonderful music, uh, the awesome music of Tobias Epstein and Holy Frog. So thanks to Toby for coming down to the studio and hanging out with me for a little while, too, last week. Okay, if you missed the show, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. And uh, once you get to the website, just go over to the archives or the music archives, and you can listen to the full program, download the full program, or go download songs from the artist who was featured on the program in any particular week, all right? Okay, tonight, as I said, Jonathan Zapp. He's an amazing speaker. He can uh, spin circles about the 2012 singularity. He knows a lot about the McKenna's work. He's a friend of John Major Jenkins. We'll talk about John's work, I'm sure. Union psychology. Energy vampires, what he calls mind parasites. The Tolkien mythos, who knows? Anyway, that's coming up in just a bit, and we'll have the music of ISM throughout the show, as a matter of fact. Wonderful, independent music from Brooklyn, New York. I featured the guys from ISM, Andre and uh, his bandmates, a few uh, a few months ago, and it's time to hear from them again. So ISM, on the web, www.ismmusic.com. That first one you heard there was Wake Up and Write It Down. So we'll hear some more from ISM as we uh, move through the program tonight, okay? Actually, I think I might do that now. I'll play another song. Uh, We'll hear one more from Ism here, and I'll get my act together. Come back after that. 
and got a lot of other things to talk about tonight, okay? We'll do some news. We've got space weather coming up in a few minutes. And as I said at the top of the hour at midnight, Jonathan Zapp. And if you want to get a leg up, hop on the web, www.zapporacle.com. And you can see what Jonathan's all about. And you can also do that from my site. If you just go over to MikeHagan.com, you can link right over to Jonathan's site from my front page there, okay? All right, this is uh, ISM. Great stuff from New York, independent music. And this is called The Fill. Back in just a minute, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM.
All right, one more time. That's Ism. That song's called The Fill. All the stuff you'll hear tonight will be music from their recently released CD in the last year called Monkey Underneath. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's about 16 minutes after 11 p.m. on the 9th of October, 2006. Amazing. Where's the time go? So hello to everybody listening over the web or otherwise, if you're listening locally or regionally on the conventional radio, we say hello to you guys as well. And we are, of course, streaming right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to all the girls and guys over there for making it happen live on the net every Monday night for us. Also, thanks as always to my good friend Larry, the web wizard, as always doing great stuff. He's got all kinds of freebies and cool things on the website for you if you go there and take a look around. So do that. All right, peek in at Mike Hagen, H-A-G-A-N dot com, and jot us a note and let us know what you think about the website. And Larry's got a bunch of stuff there that you can grab for free just for doing it. Okay. All right. Also, uh, art, music, and all the people that have been sending it. Thanks so much. And we'll play it and show it. If you send it to us, all right, I'll do my best. And music tonight, as we've been hearing already, from a wonderful independent band from Brooklyn called Ism. And that's how I found these guys, all right? So you can do the same thing if you're interested in sharing your art, your music, whatever it is. Send it to us, poetry, literature, anything. We'll get it up on the web and share it with other people, okay? All right, check it out. As I said, let us know what you think. Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N dot com. You'll have access to everything that we're doing over there. And just go over there and take a look around, all right? All right, the uh, forum is up and revitalized. Lots of great discussions happening over there. The live chat room up and active this evening. Hello to everybody there. Soul and Zero Fly and whoever else. Uh, the Bard's over there, I think. Mantwin Bard. Hi, you guys. Hi, Michael. Anyway, we'll be peeking in there for questions and comments throughout the program tonight. So if you're interested in interacting with the program, just hop on the web one more time. Go to MikeHagan.com and just click on the live chat uh, link there on the left-hand side in the main menu. And you can join whoever else is listening to the program on the web and uh, chatting about what's happening during the conversation that we're going to be having with Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Zapp in just a little while. All right? All right, my email address... For those who'd like to get in touch during times when I'm off the air, is Orbit Radio O R B I T R A D I O at AOL dot com. Right? Orbit Radio at AOL dot com. One last time, www.mikehagan.com. And tonight, Jonathan Zapp. Gonna be an amazing program. He's he's something else. Jonathan can talk about all kinds of different things that I'm interested in that you guys are most likely interested. So we'll uh we really didn't uh, box this one up too much. Not sure what we're going to talk about. There are a lot of different things that we could touch on. So we'll just sort of say hi to Jonathan, ask him a few questions about himself, and just see where it goes. But looking really forward to having Jonathan on the air with us in just a little while here. And also I want to mention, it's really not official yet, but uh, next week I'll, 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 be, I'll be doing it for real. But we actually start tomorrow is our uh, one of our annual pledge drives. We do two or three pledge drives a year here at KOPN to raise money for the station and keep independent radio on the air in mid-Missouri and on the web now, uh, sharing the stuff that we do here with everybody around the world, whoever has the gumption to listen. And I'll be trying to 
convince some of you guys who listen to my program to share a little bit of your hard-earned green with KOPN to help promote the station and uh, and keep us on the air and keep me on the air as well. You know, um, I do this streaming thing every week, and it's because of a gift, basically, from the people at Cosmic Waves Radio. They are a 24-hour-a-day online Internet radio station, and, of course, they're looking for content. And one of the uh, one of the owners of Cosmic Waves was a listener of my radio program, had heard some shows uh, from the archives. You know, he doesn't live here in, in Missouri. lives actually in Philadelphia. Uh, there are three primary guys, as a matter of fact, in Cosmic Waves. One's in Philly, one's in Amsterdam, and the other one's in China. And uh, they do a great job of setting up this Internet radio station thing. And they do it in a way where, uh, let's just say, they're very smart about the way they operate their business. All right? uh, at any rate, they basically allow me to stream my program through their network once a week. And they give me this three-hour time slot uh, on Monday evenings. And, uh, you know, and I give them Radio Orbit. And so it's a trade, basically. So it doesn't cost uh, me anything, to, at least at this point, uh, to do it. And, and I'm, I'm so appreciative of the people at Cosmic Waves for, for, for allowing me and for, uh, for giving me this opportunity uh, to stream the show live uh, to everybody out there on the web. Because, you know, I have m- many more listeners out there on the web than I have uh, here locally, quite frankly. So all of you out there, whoever and however you're listening, thanks and I appreciate it. But uh, the point of this whole conversation that I'm having with myself here is about KOPN and about how we are about to embark on our own uh, digital evolution. And we're working really hard to set up a regular stream for the show uh, and for all of the shows, for KOPN in general, 24 hours a day. And it would be, a, you know, obviously a live stream that is now initiated here from the station. And uh, it would be, you know, KOPN stream. It wouldn't be me, you know, piggybacking on Cosmic Waves, although I'll continue uh, to broadcast via Cosmic Waves as well. But uh, for the other people, uh, all the other shows on KOPN, you know, that are that, that that aren't fortunate enough right now to have somebody like Cosmic Waves allowing them to stream, we're going to be able to do it, you know, for everyone. And there's a lot of great programming on KOPN. Uh, there's a lot of great programming on KOPN, and I'm really happy that uh, we're embarking on this. But it's a you know it's a money deal, and we're going to be trying to raise some money in order to help us do that, among other things, you know, just keep the station operating. But for me and for my listeners, I think this is one thing that would really, you know, that really should strike with my listeners is because uh, of their affinity to the web and their recognition of how important the, uh, the Internet is and being able to broadcast these uh, these shows over the Internet, both live and then archive them for future reference, you know. So anyway, we'll be able to do that uh, through KOPN uh, very soon. And guess what? It's going to cost about $60 a day for uh, for the station to do this. And that's the kind of money that, you know, that I'm trying to help raise. So anyway, between now and the next uh, couple weeks, anybody out there, if you're interested in helping us out, just hop on the web and go to KOPN, KOPN.org. And it's real simple to uh, to help the station out with a little bit of um, 
uh, just a donation, uh, any any amount that you can afford uh, is greatly appreciated. And there are lots of cool little thank you gifts and stuff like that that you could uh, that you can get for 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 donating and for becoming a member here at KOPN. So on the web, one more time, KOPN.org. If you appreciate what I'm doing, then you're interested in uh, helping community uh, independent radio uh, stay alive and thriving. Then, uh, then help us out because, gosh, you guys, there are not that many of us anymore. There used to be so many of these, um, you know, independent community radio stations that did not have corporate involvement uh, and hence bias. And uh, I think there are, I think in the mid-70s, there were some 300 uh, community radio stations in the United States. And now there's 33, maybe 32 now. So, you know, a 95% uh, loss or decrease in the number of these types of stations over the last 30 years. So I don't know what that tells you. I guess only the strong survive. KOPN's been on the air since 19, uh, 1972, I think it was, or going on 34 or 35 years, and have been through some really tough times and have always managed to pull it out and to stay on the air and to, uh, you know, to keep... Uh, the airwaves open to people like me and any other people who are reasonable and uh, want to learn how to do radio and want to share thoughts, ideas, music, art, radio theater, whatever, with uh, with the rest of you. So, all right. So there's my uh, my brief spiel for KOPN, and it's a real one and one that comes from my heart. And I hope that some of my listeners out there, if you have the means, that you'll try to help us out here at the station because it means a lot to me and it means a lot to all the people here in our community locally and also now it means a lot to people who uh, have a chance to listen to the station who are not here in uh, in mid-Missouri. All right. All right. Thanks again. Okay. It's Mike and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Let's see. Tonight, Jonathan Zapp. Next week, open lines and uh, open chat. We'll just sort of catch up a little bit on news and I have a brief but important interview to share with you. It's sort of a surprise, so you'll have to tune in next week for that. But trust me, it'll be worth it. And we'll open the phone lines, and we'll see what uh, people in the chat room have to say. But next week, we won't have any particular uh, guest <clears throat> other than a short interview that I'm going to air. And we'll just catch up, all right? Uh, the following week, Jan Irvin. And a uh, real interesting guy one of the partners of a project that I was introduced to, um, oh, I don't know, three weeks or so ago. And uh, he's a really interesting fellow, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, mythology. Let's just leave it at that, and, and drugs. What else? Uh, Barge Quill. Kent Stedman, my wonderful friend, cyberspaceorbit.com. We'll have Kent on the Halloween show. That's uh, two weeks what, three weeks from now, I guess, on the 30th of October, the Halloween show, Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com. That'll be great to have Kent on the air. We haven't had a conversation with Kent for a couple, three months here. So we'll have the Bard back on the air with us in just a few weeks, okay? Also, we've got things coming up with Dale Pendell, Jim Beard, still working on Dr. Roland Griffith, Stephen Buhner, John Jenkins, Jay Widener back by the end of the year, I'm sure. I think we'll do a Solstice show in December with Jay and... Uh, I don't know, maybe have somebody join him on the air. We'll see how that all works out. But lots of stuff uh, to look forward to over the next few weeks and months, all right? Okay, let's see. What else should we do here? 
Should we take a break or should we do space weather? Let's do space weather, okay? And then we'll come back and uh, and we'll do a break after that. And then I'll uh, I'll play a nice long song for you, and I can get Jonathan on the line, and we'll do some news toward the toward the top of the hour. All right. All right. Let's see solar activity today. Uh, if you're an amateur astronomer and you're looking at the sun, you get to see a beautiful prominence dancing along the southeastern limb of our star up there. There's some interesting imagery as usual up on the web over there at spaceweather.com. This prominence is uh, sort of a typical thing that happens, but uh, it's beautiful to watch and to look at. It's, oh, I don't know, maybe 25,000 miles in, uh, in, in height, but it's actually considered a very small prominence. If you stack the Earth on top of one another, you'd get four or five of them uh, inside this little prominence. But it just shows you how big the sun is. And little bitty features on the sun like this uh, are actually, you know, quite large in scale compared to, you know, the size of the earth and the size of human beings and this sort of thing. You know, sort of like the way an ant feels when when you're lighting firecrackers or something. I don't know. As I said, hop on the web. Check out spaceweather.com and go check out some of the imagery over there, okay? There's also some great photos <clears throat> of the wonderful full, beautiful harvest moon that we got the benefit of uh, in the sky on Friday and Saturday night. Friday night in particular, of course, was the full moon. And they call it a harvest moon. The first, um, the first full moon after the fall equinox is always called the harvest moon. And anyway, it was a stunner. If you were out Friday night, I sure hope you had the, uh, the notion to look up because it was beautiful. And uh, got a nice big full moon out there tonight, as a matter of fact. Not quite full. It's what they call a waning gibbous moon now, when it's starting to get smaller, before it becomes a crescent. But at any rate, uh, some wonderful photos of the full moon from this weekend. Again, up there at spaceweather.com. And there's some really cool things about the moon's color that actually happen. It was sort of orangish if you looked up on Friday. Uh, but it has to do with airborne dust and other particles like this. And But during a full moon, the the light from a bright full moon like the harvest moon that we had a couple days ago can actually have really funky uh, effects on the colors of things down here on the earth. And uh, it's bright enough. I mean, it's, you know, people go outside and say, what is going on? It's like daylight out there and you can actually see shadows and uh, and flowers and this sort of thing, but flowers won't show their real color. They'll have a different sort of hue because of the uh, wavelength of light that's actually hitting them. It's very strange what happens in a, uh, a moon like that. But anyway, great stuff <clears throat> and uh, great photo opportunities. If you're interested in the visual stuff, hop on the web and uh, go check out spaceweather.com, all right? All right, let's see. What else is happening up there? Cassini. Uh, the Cassini probe up there flying by Saturn's moon, Titan again today. Tonight also the peak of the draconid meteor, sh uh, meteor shower. A couple of asteroids approaching the Earth in the next day or two. One in particular that I thought I'd mention, the Bill Haley asteroid, 79896. Honestly, Bill Haley. This is not Haley's Comet or Halley's Comet. Although Halley has some, some asteroids too that were named after him. Not just the, the, uh, you know, the famous comet. 
Anyway, what else? I'd like to talk about these uh, these conferences and stuff that are happening. Listen to these that are going on right now. The 17th Annual October Astrophysics Conference in Maryland. Radiation backgrounds from the first stars, galaxies, and black holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Coimbra Solar Physics Meeting. Physics of the Chromospheric Plasmas. Here's one. L- listen to this. October 9th through the 13th. The At the Edge of the Universe Conference, the latest results from deepest astronomical surveys. Uh, the workshop for doing business with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. <laughs> That's got to be a good one. How to do business with JPL. I should. Uh, you might follow that link. That's probably an interesting one. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, tomorrow, the 10th of October... Uh, there is a moon of uh, of Neptune called Triton that was discovered in 1846. So what's that? 160 years. The 160th anniversary of William Lassell's discovery of Triton, a moon of Neptune. Let's see. Here's another one in Pasadena. The Advanced Technology for Life Detection and Biology Lecture. Starry Nights Festival going on in Yucca Valley. Uh, yucky. Uh, yucky. All right, one more time. Yucca Valley, California. Starry Nights Festival, October 13th and 14th. And the Sally Ride Science Festival in L.A., October 14th, all right? It's Monday, almost Tuesday, October 10th. What's the moon doing? The moon rise tonight was about 8.03 p.m. Our time in Central Daylight Time here. About 38 degrees north of east. And uh, not too far to the lower left of the Pleiades. As it got a little bit later tonight, 8.30 or so, you'll see, or you would have seen Aldebaran, the Eye of Taurus, rising. And uh, a little bit down to the, to the, to the right, into the lower, well, the lower right of the moon, maybe 10, 12 degrees. Uh, what else do we have happening out there in the sky? By about uh, the middle of the night tonight, actually even late, early morning, I guess, the moon will be really high up in the southwest uh, sky. Aldebaran will be about 10 or 12 degrees below, and the Pleiades uh, down to the lower right. Oh, a few other stars have mentioned, Elnath. And, uh, well, I'll tell you something. You know, as daylight saving time, uh, daylight savings time goes into effect, these really dark mornings are pretty cool for following the moon's progress as it moves east against the wonderfully bright stars of the zodiac when it's dark like this. And from now until probably the 20th of October, you'll be able to watch the moon go past Castor and Pollux and the Gemini twins, Saturn, Regulus, the amazing heart of Leo, Regulus. And... uh, on into Virgo. Same sort of thing is happening on Wednesday night. The moon will rise about an hour later, about 9 o'clock. And, uh, well, just hop on the web and go sniff around for information about sky watching. And you can see all these different things and learn a lot about the stars up there above your heads and uh, the moon and the earth itself. I love all these conferences, though. I love this one about the at the edge of the universe, whatever that means. They don't even know what's at the edge of the Marianas Trench. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right, it's Mike, and let's take a break here. We'll play another song from Ism. We'll come back and talk about some news. 
and whatever else I've got on my mind for the next 15 or 20 minutes. And then we'll have Jonathan Zapp with us on the air for the next two hours from midnight down through the finish of the program. And you can find information about Jonathan on the web. It's Zap Oracle, www.zaporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E.com. All right, zaporacle.com. And you can link there directly from my site at mikehagan.com as well. And uh, like I said before, if you're interested in helping out KOPN, go for it on the web, kopn.org. For the next couple of weeks, I'll be asking for your support, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. This is Ism Beside the Sun.
Beside the Sun. That's Ism. Great tune there from uh, Monkey Underneath. We'll be playing some more songs from that CD throughout the program tonight. Okay, it's Mike Hagen. You're listening to it. Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We're just about 20 minutes or so, a little less than that, before midnight, coming up on the 10th of October. Jonathan Zapp with us in just about that same amount of time, 19, 20 minutes or so. And let's see, what do we want to talk about between now and then? We did Space Weather, and, well, there are a few songs, uh, a few stories in the news that we've got up on the website that I'll just sort of glance over here. Maybe we can chat a little bit about these things here. Right at the top of the news section here on the website, frustrated U.S. scientists push for pro-science president. Frustrated by their government's position on the environment, climate change, and stem cell research, a group of U.S. scientists have decided to take, ma- um, to take matters into their own hands and actively promote the election of a president in 2008 who is more receptive to science. Well, I don't know. I don't know where they're living, what planet they're on, quite frankly. But, you know, the Dr. Alan Goldsteins of the world uh, aren't showing too much concern about the political administration in charge of, uh, you know, the country. I mean, the politicians are just buffoons. You know, I mean, they don't do anything until after the fact. The politicians are reacting to, you know, basically popularity-gaining schemes. You know, they'll do anything. They'll vote anyway uh, if they think that that's what will make them more popular. And that it's usually driven after the fact. But science, you know, is marching forward. I don't know of any real scientists out there that give a damn about what George Bush and company actually have to say. I mean, the scientists are actually the ones that are, uh, we're sort of at their mercy in, 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 in a lot of ways. I was talking to Paul LaViolette, Dr. Paul LaViolette, about this uh, a few months ago, off the air. And, you know, there are a couple of things that are going on in science that the government has, uh, you know, very little understanding of. The first one is basically a language barrier. I mean, there's sort of de facto secret societies in the sciences just because of language alone. I mean, a couple people from, you know, the astrophysical community could be sitting behind you in a booth at Emo's, and unless you're reading the journals every day and you're up on the lingo, you're not going to know what the hell they're talking about. Same thing goes with genetics or energy or, uh, I don't know, you know, whatever, bioterrorism nanotechnology, nanobiotechnology, even the stuff that we talk about. You know, Jonathan Zapp tonight, we'll be talking about the 2012 singularity, mind parasites, and, you know, uh, time wave zero, and I mean, all this stuff is Greek, unless you have the, uh, you know, the foundation on which to understand it. So language is a huge thing in, you know, in this whole entire picture. But in the halls of science right now, you know, and it's, all, it's also a big hindrance. It's also a big problem because, uh, because of scientists become specialists. And so they learn a whole lot about their particular field. But they don't know much about other fields typically. There aren't a whole lot of generalists out there that know, you know, the, you know, the cutting edge, bleeding edge research in a whole, in a whole bunch of, of different fields of science. 
And these days, it's important that we do that because, uh, you know, so many things that happen in one particular area could have profound implications in other areas. And many times, those researchers aren't even aware uh, or understand the language in the other area. So, anyway, science... Uh, you know, as uh, as much as I get down on, on on science, because you know I recognize that it's just a tool and it's not some meta theory that uh, can be used, you know, to somehow judge every single uh, thing. But you know, it is a tool, and for the people that are using it correctly, there are lots of things that can be discovered through science. And whether you have a president that's a you know right wing Neanderthal or uh, you know. Someone who's supposedly on the left. I mean, that's just BS is all that is. It's just a political story, basically. Anyway, what else? Uh, NASA performs head count of local black holes. There you go. There's another whistle past the graveyard story. Speaking of Paul LaViolette, you know, you should read Dr. Paul's books, uh, Beyond the Big Bang or uh, Quantum Subkinetics. He's basically, and he's not alone, but, you know, the whole black hole theory is one that's pretty shaky. Uh, but regardless, uh, it is a theory. It is not fact. It's a theory. Yet these guys are now, uh, NASA scientists using the SWIFT satellite have conducted the first complete census of galaxies with active central black holes, as opposed to inactive central black holes, I guess. Uh, a project that scanned the entire sky several times over a nine-month period. Anyway, just more arrogance. Uh, researchers find new information about Earth's origins. Two Dartmouth researchers have learned more about the origins and makeup of the solar nebula, the large gaseous cloud thought to have spawned the solar system. At least they, at least they write that one with the right language. Thought to have spawned the solar system. At least somebody admits they don't know what's really going on. Uh, Mukul Sharma... I don't know what the language of this is. Anyway, Bakul Sharma have found evidence that more than one dying star, or supernova, contributed to the makeup of the solar nebula, which in turn provides insights into the evolution of planets. Astronomers see inside a quasar for the first time. This is unreal. For the first time, astronomers have looked inside quasars, the brightest objects in the universe and have seen evidence of black holes. Outrageous. Do you know the amount of light that is being received from a quasar by our satellites or our, you know, these uh, interferometers that they use and this sort of thing? It's the equivalent of a, of a, of a cigarette ash, you know. And, and from this, they somehow extrapolate, you know, the entire makeup of the universe, apparently. And they can look inside quasars and all this sort of stuff. It's just a complete joke. Uh, speaking of, new evidence indicates the universe egg-shaped. Now, you know, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm being biased tonight because I'm reading all these... But these are, this, is what's, this is what's in the news, if you're interested in science. It's like uh, grasping at straws. Like, look, we're going we're gonna to tell you all these things that, you know, that we think we know, but we're going to painted as fact just to let everyone know that we're not scared and we know exactly what's happening here and, you know, everything's perfectly normal and humdrum and just 
nothing here to look at. Just keep moving along. New evidence indicates the universe egg-shaped. There you go. Where's the chicken? Anyway, using a microwave probe of the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, scientists say they have evidence that the universe has a shape somewhat akin to an egg, rather than the expected round. Well, I don't know who expected it to be round. I don't know why you'd expect anything. Maybe a torus, if anything. Sort of lean towards Marco Roden and his sort of ideas. But um, who knows what it is. But, you know, anyway, the NASA scientists say now that it's an egg. All right. Mm, let's see. Treasure at the bottom of the sea. Speaking of the Marianas Trench, here's one. The global economy could soon be getting its supply of raw materials from the deep seabed where copper, zinc, cobalt, and gold lie hidden in black smokers and manganese nodules. As the prices of land-based natural resources rise, new technologies might soon be crushing undersea rock containing metal ores and pumping it to the surface. Do you ever have the feeling that you're, that you're going like 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall and the guy who's driving doesn't even know that he's moving? In 1957, German theoretical physicist Burkhard Heim publicly outlined a new idea for spacecraft propulsion. It was based on his new theory of physics, which successfully described Einstein's theory of relativity within the framework of quantum mechanics, and it, marred, uh, and it married the two so effectively that he became an instant celebrity. It's an interesting story, actually, the story of, of uh, Burkhard Heim. And in fact, uh, an interesting story uh, in general, the aerodynamic and uh, engineering people and energy dynamics people that were working in Germany during, uh, before, during, and shortly after the Second World War. And after the Second World War, they were spirited off, many of them over here to our country, to continue nefarious work. Some did good work, uh, but uh, I mean, it's absolutely outrageous if you, if you uh, look at the history of um, some of our intelligence agencies and the space program. Anyway, you know, we had, uh, it reminds me of Nick Cook. We had Nick Cook on, the guy who's a former uh, aerospace editor for Jane's Defense Weekly. He wrote a really interesting book called The Hunt for Zero Point. And he does a pretty in-depth look at the German science uh, establishment during the war and what they were working on. And I tell you what, they they were way, way ahead of the curve. And many people don't realize what was happening in Germany at the time with regard to science. And it wasn't just that they were ahead of the curve on development. It was that they had a completely different approach to science. The, the German scientists that were running all of their uh, industrial and military programs, including the rocket programs and, uh, and some really underground uh, energy development programs and flying disks and all this stuff, they completely rejected Einsteinian relativism. They completely rejected Einsteinian physics. And they had a much more uh, esoteric view of the world. They had a complete different worldview than the, the, the Nazis did. And their scientists were a part of that. And it's a real interesting history, if you look into it. Uh, regardless, this guy Burkhard Heim was really interesting. And uh, 
you got to imagine that much of the stuff that was happening back then, 50 years ago now, uh, was not just forgotten about and was developed and further researched. And much of it went underground. There's no question about it. Uh, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that there has to be something else going on with regard to, uh, certainly with regard to aerospace technology, but with regard to energy in general. And, uh, you know, our understanding of gravity and the relationship of gravity to electricity and magnetism and this sort of thing. So anyway, one of these days is all going to pop open, baby. And when it does, you know, there are a lot of things that are about to pop, by the way. So, anyway, okay, look, uh, we got about five until the top of the hour here, so let's take one last break here. We'll play another song from ISM. We'll come back in just a few minutes with Jonathan Zapp, and we'll um, get things going with him right at the top of the hour, okay? All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia on the web at MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. If you're interested in my guest tonight, you can find him on the web as well at ZappOracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E. ZapOracle.com, and you can link there directly from my site as well, okay? All right, back in just a minute with Jonathan Zapp, all right? It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, back in just a moment.
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Everybody, it's Mike. Back at you here just a few minutes after midnight now, October the 10th, 2006. All right, let's get right to it here. My guest tonight, his name is Jonathan Zapp. He's an author, he's a photographer, he's a teacher, a paranormal researcher, philosopher, and uh, someone who's written extensively on human evolution and contemporary mythology. Jonathan can uh, spin yarns about the 2012 singularity. He knows a lot about the McKenna's work. He's done some collaborative work with John Major Jenkins. In fact, that's how I was introduced to Jonathan. He knows a lot about Jungian psychology, which we'll probably discuss a little bit tonight. The Tolkien mythos, perhaps energy vampires, mind parasites, dream oracles, maybe even a little bit about current events in the uh, sort of cosmic context. So we'll discuss all of that for the next couple of hours, and we'll say hello right now, and thank you for being on the program, uh, Jonathan Zapp. Welcome to Radio Orbit. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm grateful to be on the show, and also I'm grateful for Radio Orbit in general. I've been listening for the last year since John Jenkins recommended it, and you've got a great uh, approach that's casual and relaxed, but often that's done at the expense of depth, but in your case, uh, rather than skirting over the surface of things, you really probe into the depth of things while, while keeping that relaxed, casual tone, and that, that's a, a great balance. So I appreciate that a lot. Well, I appreciate the uh, the, the nice words, and we'll, we'll try to we'll try to do some of that tonight, all right? Excellent. All right, well, look, uh, let's start off with you, Jonathan Zapp. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get on this path? There are a lot of different things that you're interested in. I mentioned a few of them uh, in the brief introduction that I did, but uh, how, how'd you get along this uh, this road? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it really began in, in childhood and with certain anomalous experiences and, and paranormal experiences. And although I didn't define it until relatively recently, I was always sort of following a path that I, I, I've since called the path of the numinous, hmm. uh, which is an essay on my site as well. Um, and numinous is a word that Jung used a lot. He didn't create it, but numinous means spirit. Well, I'm sure you know what numinous means, mm-hmm. something that lights up with an uncanny significance. And, and I'm sure that you and many of the people who listen to your show are following precisely the same path. You, you find this numinous thing that just lights up in your mind as having this uncanny significance, and then you kind of follow that down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. and see where, where it leads you. And there were some very specific experiences uh, that, that led me there, there were a number of them. Um, if you want, I'll focus on one that, that relates to some of the themes you were just talking about with Jung and with uh, the singularity and, and, and even 2012. Um, an example of a kind of numinous experience that happened was watching uh, a science fiction film in like the early 60s. It was a British science fiction film uh, called uh, The Village of the Damned, a black and white 
1960, I think it was made in England, uh-huh. and it was just absolutely haunting. You know, I had seen so many science fiction films and horror films and, and so forth, but there was something about this. It had, it had a numinosity that, that haunted me that seemed to stir, you know, a sense of, you know, this is what my life is about. This is what I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm working on somehow. And, but I had no way of making any sense of that. And another experience like that was reading uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End when I was in high school or something like that. Um, because here are what I thought were my most original creative ideas in my own juvenile sci-fi fantasies. And, and here was a guy, here it is right in this book. You know, I checked it when it was printed, 1953, four years before I was born. You know, how was that possible? Right. And it wasn't until my, my junior and senior year in college uh, when I was 19 and 20 years old, that, that I had a chance to um, do independent study projects. And that's really when my, my education began. And I think probably a lot of the listeners have discovered that, too, that when you're out of the institution and can do your own independent research, that that's when the real education starts. Man, no doubt. No and doubt. so I, I just started looking into some of these things that, that haunted me. And, and um, it was actually my mom, who's a psychologist, who said, you know, you should look into this Carl Jung and his idea of the archetypes. And so uh, when I was uh, 19 years old, I went up to the top floor of the library, and there are these impressive black volumes, the Princeton Bullingen editions. But I'm like, what is this dead Swiss guy, you know, rich man of the 19th century, going to say about the weird sci-fi obsessions of this Jewish kid from the Bronx? Right, right. And um, so I go to the index volume, and... Uh, I see, wow, he's got a book called Flying Saucers, yeah. Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. Sky. Well, that's, that's a direct hit because so many of these stories, uh, like Village of the Dam and Childhood's End, they always seem to involve this, this UFO motif that was very haunting to me. So I open up that book, and um, I see that at the end of it, he's got like an epilogue, and after the epilogue, there's like some other extra epilogue or something. It was like he, he was writing about this right near the end of his life, and it was like he was haunting him, and he couldn't let go of the subject. One of these two epilogues is an extensive study of a British science fiction novel called The Wyndham Cuckoos by by John, I can't think of his name right now. What's it called, The Wyndham Cuckoos? The Wyndham Cuckoos. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. I've transposed the words in my mind. Okay, okay. And and that is the novel um, that the book, that the movie, Village of the Damned, was made from. So it was as if uh, a holographic Jung were, were, were standing there right beside me looking over my shoulder and saying, like, yeah, I was, I was fascinated with that one, too. And here's what I thought, which had a lot of parallels to sort of what I thought about it. So it was almost like um, that was my introduction to Jung was this intense synchronicity. And he's, of course, the guy who, who turned, coined the term synchronicity. And it was an intensely personal thing. And so I sort of regarded him as my spiritual grandfather from that moment on as this intense mentor, even though, of course, I never actually met him, um, and it really just began at that at that exact moment. All right. Yeah, Jung was remarkable, and most people, even people who are interested in Jung, don't talk a lot about that book, uh, Flying Saucers, A Modern Mythology of Things Seen in the Sky, and it was like 1952 or 53, something like that, when it was published. Right. And, and uh, it's a remarkable book. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this archetype of the flying saucer. It comes up too often. What, what, what do you make of that? Well, uh, what, what Jung made of it, I'll tell you what he said first, um, because 
you know, he died in 1961. We've had a chance to see the myth continue. Right. But, but he, he noticed the circularity of the object, and, and he related that, of course, to the, the, the first right. archetype right. that discovered the mandala. Right, the archetype and of the, the circle. the idea of the circle is this divine thing that even relates to the, the Tolkien mythology. You know, mm-hmm. the, the ring. The Sanskrit, exactly. That yeah. is like a Sanskrit definition of God as a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Right, the beginning and the end, yeah. Right. Or and with no beginning and with no end, yeah. Exactly, and, and, and so Jung um, noticed that uh, these were divine signs sort of seen in the heavens, and, and he kind of expected that, that some weird things were going to come out of the collective mythology because he felt, and he, and he also experienced in his own childhood, this, this vacuum um, in terms of the collective mythology. He felt the Christian myth had, had been on the decline for quite some time, and he experienced it in his own life because his father was a Protestant minister, but his father's conviction was actually very superficial. Right, it didn't right. really even make sense of the Christian uh, myth and, and admitted that to, to uh, Carl, who was you know, really taken aback by that. And so he expected that, that some strange things would appear in this kind of tabula rasa. And, and he wrote about some of that in his um, one of the, volume 10, Civilization and Transition. Because, you know, when I think he also was aware of the work of Arnold Toynbee, who said that basically when a, when a civilization no longer had a ruling myth, that's when it was in decline, when mm. Toynbee mapped out the, the life cycle of civilizations. And so here was sort of like the beginning of a new mythology uh, coming into being, a new and sign seen in the heavens, and a new set of beliefs. And especially at that phase, there were a lot of people, and there still are people, who uh, will see the... Uh, extraterrestrials or whatever they uh, assume is the, is behind the, the, this phenomenon has um, possibly intervening uh, to help mankind uh, through a time of a perilous evolutionary crisis. Hmm. That doesn't mean that that projection is wrong. It just means that, that there is a projection going on that would have this kind of um, uh, god-like um, connection to it. But since then, the, the myth has, has also changed considerably. And basically, where Jung left off, at least in his book, uh, Flying Saucers and Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky, is at the exact point where I started up hmm. you know, with that, that same movie and the same story behind it. Well, Jung, it seemed, when I read it, it seemed that he, that, that he saw it pretty clearly that just because something was a denizen of the psychic realm, that it could have force in reality. In other words, it could actually manifest itself in reality. So in other words, when people say, well, was he just saying that people are seeing things in their heads? That really wasn't the case. He believed that it was actually a projection, but the projection via the superego or something like that was actually manifested in the physical. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, he, he noted that, that these objects do reflect radar. And we, we learned, you know, even from the very recent... Uh, Deidre Bear, biography of Jung, the most authorized or almost mm. authorized mm-hmm. one. She had unprecedented access, access to him. Yeah. Um, he was very um, mysteriously critical of, of a particular general who suggested they weren't real, and, and Jung just very, very much dismissed him as someone who really knew that there, there was a physical reality to them. Um, so it seemed that in private he was even more convinced of that than, than what he suggests in the book. Um, and so Jung, Jung's whole life was... Um, recognizing that you know, the most core level of reality was in the uh, collective unconscious and in the psyche. And so 
whereas uh, the average person, especially when Jung was was around, you know, was to say, oh, it's nothing but in your mind. It's nothing but you know something happening in in your head. Uh, Jung, who was the archetypal introvert, recognized that these things had an intense um, reality and were actually the most potent reality because almost everything we're experiencing, such as war and environmental dis- destruction, originates from the psyche. And, and Jung recognized that, and he also saw that there was a physical crossover. He was very well aware of the new discoveries in quantum mechanics. His principle of synchronicity is really about that crossover between psyche and soma. And, and Jung consulted very closely with Wolfgang Pauli, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. his book Synchronicity, and had some dinner conversations with Einstein as well. So he was he was very aware that there was this breach, you know, that there wasn't an absolute firewall firewall between psyche and the outside world as um, Descartes you know, would have had. Right, right, the, the Cartesian material world, right. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. All right, look, uh, everybody, let's let's mention Jonathan's website real fast here. It's ZapOracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E dot com. And there's lots of interesting information there on the website. And uh, you have a blog, actually, that you have some uh, some entries on over the last few weeks. And lots of things that you've written, some interviews that you've done in the past. Uh, what uh, tell people a little bit about the website? Well, the website, first of all, is called Zap Oracle, not because I think of myself as an oracle, but because it is the home of, of the Zap Oracle, <laughs> um, which is an oracle that, that I started creating about 30 years ago. It happened sort of by a kind of accident and synchronicity, which people can read about on the website. And now it consists at the moment of 305 images with, with uh, extensive captions. So it's kind of like a giant tarot deck, and you consult it for free, and there are four different types of readings, and uh, uh, it's the most popular thing on my site. So I hope people get a chance to check that out. And, of course, there's also a gallery and a writing section. Right, there's some great images there. Yeah, and so forth. Yeah. All right, yeah, everybody, so check that out. Actually, the, uh, the Oracle is really fun, too, actually. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, check it out on the web at www.zaporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E dot com. All right, uh, let's see here. Uh, let me take a peek in the chat room real fast, Jonathan. Okay. And uh, see, see if anybody has anything uh, before we move on to something else that they'd like to ask. Well, they're asking about, uh, there's some talk about 2012, and we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, here's a question, and it's a good way to, to, to maybe talk a little bit about 2012 and maybe the time wave theories that Terrence and Dennis okay. uh, came up with. Somebody here says, uh, uh, Mike sure hope uh, Jonathan Zapp will tell us his amazing story of how he met Terrence McKenna. And I don't know the story, so and I don't even know if you did meet Terrence, but if you did, maybe you can tell the story. Okay, well, I don't know how amazing it is, but... Uh, <laughs> um, well, it, when I first had a chance to actually talk to Terrence. I'd maybe seen him at a talk in New York City when I was living there earlier, but this is my first chance to actually meet Terrence, and, and it was uh, a great experience for me because when I first started reading Terrence in the 90s, it was a tremendous confirmation for me because I had arrived at such parallel conclusions about where we are heading, but it was through this much more Jungian means, through analyzing science fiction stories and and so forth. And and it was amazing that Terrence had come to such uh, similar realizations through entirely different means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, here I was finally getting to meet him. It was in um, uh, the spring of 1996, 
but it was also had reason to to kind of challenge uh, Terence a lot, and that's kind of my expression of unconditional love is to challenge people in Socratic dialogue. No doubt, I agree with you. Respect them, and because I I felt he was such a great genius and visionary, but that his kind of bet noir, you know, that was this obsessive object that was misleading him, was the whole time wave uh, theory as far as its specific prediction of when there would be ebbs and, you know, mm-hmm. weaning and so forth. Of, right. Uh, right, of novelty and habit. Uh, exactly. And, and this was a time of a great disconfirmation, which, which is basically what every prophet or everybody who's ever tried to time scale uh, these kind of things uh, seems to experience, because his theory had predicted this intense descent into novelty for the first three months of 1996. And Terence was about the only person that I've ever taken seriously as far as making a, a time scale prediction. Right. And so um, um, I, I also noticed especially during the, the weekend that I got to spend some time with him, that, that uh, holes in his thinking related to the, specifically the time wave thing. But even, you know, Terrence was such a great genius that even where he might have been uh, kind of astray somehow, um, underneath that were, were these incredibly important and absolutely true insights. Right, I think that, right. that this is a thing to notice about seasons of time and even about your own day, you know, and your, the variety of days where you have one day where, you know, you have three synchronicities before breakfast after waking up from a lucid dream and other days that just seem very mundane. Hmm. And, and so I think his insight that um, there is a, a flowing and ebbing and flowing of novelty and habit as we go through time um, is just an amazing insight. And I think his ideas about the singularity were amazing, but um, the specific predictions of time wave 2000 didn't seem to hold up. And right. of course, some years after that, there was a, a fix of time wave uh, because he, he developed this critic who was very mathematically adept, and, um, and Terence made some fixes to it uh, somewhere near the end there. But um, I never, I never. Uh, that was the disconfirmation experience for me mm-hmm. in '96. But I got to challenge him, and he, he made it even it made some admissions. Like I said, like Volturance, you know, in one case here you're, you're locating this descendant's novelty at the birth of Muhammad, and other times it's like after somebody's already been alive and, and created their creation that has caused novelty. So, so where where do you locate it when a great figure is born or after their uh, work has had some effects? Right, right, like, right. well, you're right. Mm-hmm. Novelty is a slippery concept. Right, right, right. Like anything, when you start to look really closely, you know? I mean, I think, I, and interestingly enough, I think that Terence was the first one that would probably, you know, he, he'd love to argue against scientism. Right. You know? He did that so eloquently. He too. really did it eloquently, and yet, you know, the time wave theory, he struggled and struggled to make it fully scientific, you know what I mean? And I think that it's sort of, uh, uh, it doesn't surprise me or it won't surprise me, uh, you know, if the time wave was, you know, particularly accurate or not. But like you say, uh, within all of this work, uh, there, there, were, there was some tremendous insight that came uh, from, from Terrence. Yeah, and he was very open to other points of view because mm. he was very supportive of John Jenkins, for example, who right. wrote the introduction to his book, uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, mm-hmm. even though... Um, if you look at their two perspectives, they, they couldn't be more different. They're almost uh, polar opposites as far as their view of what's going to happen as we approach 2012. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think a lot of people assume that those views were concurrent. Yeah, and they're, they're 
really not, because uh, John emphasizes this large zone of time. Um, I think he was on your show recently and talked about sort of like from 1992 to 20. 12 or 20, uh, 20 or something like that. I remember he gave like a 30-year period because yeah. basically lining up with the galactic center is not something that, that happens at a, at a specific moment. So, right, so right. he talks about right. it as a zone of time. Mm-hmm. He's very influenced by the perennial philosophy, as is Jay Widener, mm-hmm. um, and the whole idea of the cycling of these great ages. And so we're sort of on the cusp, but... You know, even 30 years is a pretty thin slice of time, if you think about it. Right, when you look at the grand scheme, yeah. But Terrence had had a very uh, different idea um, where he saw, like, the last few seconds before midnight or something on, you know, the eve of December 21st, 2012, there'd be more novelty in those few seconds mm-hmm. than in the thousands of years that preceded it. So basically, he saw a situation where uh, you would have this unbelievably radical exponentiation um, of, of, of novelty going on and, and there'd be this like you know absolutely a singularity would occur and it'd be an absolute rupture of plane and a complete departure from um, what had come before right, right. And, and now what's interesting about that is that although uh, I don't I don't uh, buy into that as a, as a specific prediction though, though I'll be thrilled if it happens uh, I can see scenarios, and the work that I did before I even read Terrence foresaw and sort of showed bubbling out of the collective unconscious a kind of scenario where, some, where exactly something like that could occur, where you could get in a few seconds more novelty happening than in thousands of years that preceded. it. And, and, and here's what it is, very briefly. Um, it served a great evolutionary purpose to build up a kind of firewall um, that relates to the ego structure, psychic structure called the ego, mm-hmm. of separating us from other people. Because I think group telepathy is kind of more the norm in nature than the exception, like schools of fish, sure, sure. flocks of birds, and so forth. Yeah, roots but, of trees, all these things. But it turned out that, that creating, bringing down that group telepathy um, and that, that bond with the, the, the overriding bond with the group, the group think, and so forth, was a tremendous engine of novelty. It allowed tremendous individuality to come into existence, and much of it richly pathological, of course, because <laughs> you know you don't get a big top without a big bottom, like a Tom Robbins character says. You know, it's just the Taoist <laughs> nature of things. The light and dark have to come together, and so um, uh, and so that process, that engine of novelty, has continued up until the present, where we've now hit a kind of evolutionary cul-de-sac because. With that feeling of separation, now we can have people who will be willing to destroy the very organic matrix that they're part of, because they're they're looking out for number one, or they have this this um, their perspective is based on separation. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what my work related to the singularity archetype indicated, which was so close to what uh, Terence uh, talked about, is uh, a scenario where. Um, you would have a sudden eruption of group telepathy, and where, um, but where it would not homogenize individuality, like in some sort of Buddhist scenarios where you're just sort of composted back into the background of zeros and ones, but where individuality is incredibly enhanced by its inter- interface uh, in an unprecedented way with other individualities. And you see models for that, for example, in the, in the Dune books. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with Frank yeah. Herbert's. Yeah, Frank, Frank, he was an interesting character himself, Frank Oh, Herbert. absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a 
His son recently wrote a biography of him called Dreamer of Dune. And, and uh, you know, he's one of the influential figures in my life. I think one of the you know, giant figures in a fantasy world and, and a world of uh, uh, being a channel for the for archetypes. So if you remember the, the uh, rite that the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, uh, the water where they take this deadly poison called mm-hmm. the water of life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and an adept will either uh, die in the experience or if they survive, and then they will become a reverend mother and advance in the sisterhood, they will now have a collective awareness of all the other reverend mothers, living or dead, um, who have similarly survived that ritual. And their individuality is not lost, it's enhanced by this. It's kind of as if you know we had a planet of five, six million uh, G5s, right. you know, some, some sort of computer, and now they were suddenly all networked. Yeah, that whole that whole that whole water of life <clears throat> uh, image is an analog to the psychedelic experience in a way. I think to me, it's at least. It's, you mean, Absolutely. oftentimes you have this this sort of death and rebirth sort of idea, and and oftentimes, uh, well, not oftentimes, but I guess uh, there are situations where it can certainly. Uh, it, the pharmacology might not kill you, but you might be dangerous to yourself. You know. <laughs> right, and I think Terence, of course emphasized uh, how much uh, psychedelics uh, could be an evolutionary catalyst. But what I would expect would be the thing that would uh, trigger uh, this, this sort of situation would be a uh, something that threatened the entire genome, a mm-hmm. species-threatening event. Because mm-hmm. as both Freud and Jung noticed, organisms are very conservative. They, they do everything to maintain that homeostasis, that dialed-in equilibrium. So to get a tremendous change, a quantum kind of change, then I think that the whole um, genome needs to be threatened. And we're doing everything possible um, with all our human ingenuity to bring about exactly those kind of scenarios. Hmm. So maybe um, <clears throat> everything's going exactly according to plan, at least from a, from a natural standpoint. In other words, if nature is pushing for uh, you know, the furtherance of intelligence or complexity or novelty, whatever you want to call it, I guess... Uh, it has to go through periods of extremism uh, in order to push it hard enough to make the shift. Absolutely. That was recognized in the I Ching with the, the, uh, the, sh- the principle of shock, which was both a hexagram and a trigram. Mm. And, um, and, and it was kind of amazing because both Terrence and I had such parallel thoughts on the subject. Of the I Ching. Before I, before I even encountered Terrence, starting in the 70s, and even came up with a similar sort of parable. Let me tell you what, what they were, just so you can compare them. The example that I used to get people to think out of the, the box and, and to realize that, that things that man was doing, including environmental destruction and so forth, uh, could actually be, you know, first of all, they're not apart from nature. Anytime people use the word natural, they're right. engaging in some kind of sloppy thinking because right. inherence recognizes that well, nothing is, is outside of nature. Right, everything, even all of our technology, everything is part right. Of, right. As, as Terrence put it, nature created a technology extruding primate. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the scenario that I used to, to represent this, I would uh, talk to people about it, was that maybe the ideal evolutionary scenario would be a massive thermonuclear war. Because only in that circumstance, um, with that many um, spirits leaving the body all at the same time, with that much interrupted will to live, that might be the thing that would create the next, uh, what I call homo gestalt, the next organi- you know, transcendent human organism that would have this greater global telepathy and, mm-hmm. and so forth. 
and I didn't mean that to be totally taken seriously, but just as a think-out-of-the-box example. Right. And the example that Terrence came up with was that um, if Gaia were conscious, that the thing she would be most concerned about would be the uh, asteroidal impacts that would be absolutely devastating, and that, you know, as Terrence put it, you know, last time flattened anything larger than a chicken. <laughs> and uh, and that was another part of his genius was his eloquence and his ability to come up with those colorful phrases. And uh, that, that, therefore, if she were conscious, she would create this technology-extruding primate that would act as the ultimate gardener's tool to create uh, nuclear-tipped projectiles and deep space radar to protect, act as an immune system for the planet. Yeah, and also to create a technology where they could leave the planet and bring the gene swarm somewhere else. Right, and you probably uh, were, were struck like I, I was by the recent uh, Steve, Stephen Hawking news conference where he said... <sighs> you guys want to survive, you need to get off planet. Get off planet, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in, in many ways, you know, the, 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 uh, it's a frightening scenario, the global thermonuclear war scenario, uh, but it is one that I recognize as a possibility for something like that because I do think that it will have to be something significant uh, because, I mean, just a tremendous amount of pressure is required, I think. Right, like the water of life. It either right. kills you right. or it pushes or you. It evolves you, mm -hmm. and, and we need that kind of pressure. So it's like uh, if, if you take the, the hallucinogen as a metaphor, um, it works very closely, that you need some kind of uh, shock, uh, incredible shock to the equilibrium, mm -hmm. um, but it, it stimulates vision. And, and suddenly when, um, when we're all that threatened, then maybe you know, individual differences will somehow be compensated by this tremendous uh, global... Right. Uh, awareness. It was cool. interesting because we both saw that that 2012 video that Jay Widener and Sharon mm -hmm. Stone produced. And right, wonderful. I noticed that at least a couple of the people on there, um, uh, Jose Aguares, uh, and uh, I don't always agree with them on things, but and Jeff Stray, that they both referred to that possibility. Uh, so that that interested me quite a bit that they yeah. made this in association. Yeah, I think so too. Because um, as as we're talking about it now, I'm thinking that perhaps the threat of global thermonuclear war will push us or some of us off planet. Maybe that's part of the plan, too. That's maybe a little bit more of a rosy plan. But, um, but regardless, I think, you know, uh, unless it seems that the only way to avoid a tremendous amount of bloodshed down here is, uh, is to go up there. So maybe the only way out is up. Well, um, but I would also not be totally literal about up because... In addition to the literal space travel, I think that uh, what we're also seeing in this, and I think parents saw it as well, as uh, a profound change in the nature of corporate reality, mm. of uh, the relationship between psyche and uh, outside reality. Because just as we started talking about uh, the things that Jung noticed that, that you know with the UFOs, that that, that the psyche can exteriorize itself. Mm. Right? There really is no firewall between inner and outer. I think what, what Terence anticipates and, and, and what I do as well is a fundamental shift in that, where in, which we're creating on a technological level. It's sort of like everything that, that may happen organically seems to be anticipated by technological realities. We have the global, we have the PC revolution where you have this individual computer on your desk, you know, remote from anything else, and then, then we get the internet. So now there's this global telepathy going on. It's amazing. It's a great evolutionary catalyst. And uh, we, we're seeing in uh, 
other technological areas, the strange parallelism uh, to where we may, may get to organically. All right, look, uh, Jonathan, that's a good place to take a break, okay? But we'll come back, I think, and we'll talk a little bit more about this idea of psyche versus reality and the, and the relationship between the two, okay? Great. All right, cool. Hey, everybody, it's Jonathan Zapp, and uh, he'll be with us for another hour and a half or so. Check him out on the web, zapporacle.com. You can also link directly there from my site at www.mikehagan.com. And you're listening to it, Radio Orbit, on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And we'll be back in just a minute with, uh, with more from Jonathan Zapp. This song is called Breathe. And again, it's uh, ISM. One of my favorite new bands from Brooklyn, New York. And one more, uh, one more time from the, uh, from the recently released CD, Monkey Underneath.
All right, that's a song called Breathe from our friends from Brooklyn, New York, ISM. Hi, everybody. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Got to take care of a little bit of business here. Back in just a few seconds. Did you ever wonder what elementary students think about? Tune in 3 o'clock Tuesday afternoons on KOPN 89.5 FM. Come with us. Travel into the minds of elementary students at 3 o'clock Tuesday afternoons on KOPN. Tune in to hear. The Expressive Art School Creative Writers. There you go. Good, uh, Great stuff there. We've got... Uh, Kids get involved with the station too, as well these days, and so getting into, uh, into the minds of elementary school children—you'll learn a lot. Trust me. All right, what else? One more thing here. Uh, program support for KOPN comes from Colors. Colors is an educational organization made up of local independent businesses, community organizations, and citizen members who would like you to know that entrepreneurship fuels America's economic innovation and prosperity and can help families move out of low-wage jobs into the middle class. Information is available at coloralliance.org. Colors Dollars participants for the upcoming fund drive will include Haas's Market and Rotisserie, La Bonne Vie, uh, and Sub Shops. Okay, there you have it. It's Mike. Radio Orbit about uh, 20 minutes before 1 a.m., on now the 10th of October 2006. My guest is Jonathan Zapp. You can find information and lots of other things about Jonathan on the web at ZappOracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E dot com. And you can also link there from here on out uh, on my site at MikeHagan.com. We'll have this show up in the archives like we always do uh, sometime tomorrow probably. So anyway, Jonathan, hi. Thanks for sticking around. Glad to be back. All right. So look, before the break there, we're talking about... Uh, well, Terrence and Carl Jung, and this idea of the psyche and how it sort of crosses over into reality, and uh, uh, perhaps we could talk a little bit more about this. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you uh, brought us back to that point, because there, there's a lot more to be said about that. I was mentioning something about how technology would tend to be this kind of uh, not-too-distant mirror of, of where organic evolution is heading and, and also helping to catalyze it. It's really not a separate movement, but, but one of the parallel lines in, in a complex tapestry. And so another thing that we're creating that, that's just in its infancy is virtual reality. And, and so we, we see um, that a core will, a core intention in the human species that, that, that started with the, the first cave paintings when we, uh, you know, for the longest time, uh, we were just making concrete tools, and suddenly there was this desire to exteriorize the psyche and create artifacts um, and uh, technologies that were much further removed from nature than you know the stick that a chimpanzee mm-hmm. uses to pull out the termites and that kind of thing. But an extension of the same thing. And, and it, but an extension of of of, of psyche and of um, a will to control the environment. Right. And so you know, as you look around your studio, everything that you're seeing probably you know, unless you have some plants there or something, is, is an exteriorization of psyche. And so that is our core will, and we are now, as we are, if we um, believe the perennial philosophy that says that we are on the, the cusp between the Iron Age and the age of the, the most intense densification and materialization, and if we really are on the cusp uh, 
the new golden age, where, where the spiritual light would enter more, we'd expect to see uh, some part of that um, trend in technology. And in fact, we do, because what we are seeing is the etherealization of technology. Uh, so, for example, on just a literal level, uh, I think it was during the 1990s, and I might have the ratio slightly off because I don't, I don't have the article in front of me, the, the value of the U.S. industrial production increased fourfold, mm-hmm. uh, approximately. At the same time, the weight of it, the physical weight of it, decreased by about three quarters because we were producing less pig iron and more pixels mm-hmm. and intellectual property in the form of zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. So we see that technology itself is etherealizing and we are making incredible progress that any of the alchemists would have been envious of in exteriorizing psyche in this interactive, dynamic way. So now when I look at the pixelated screen of my, my laptop, I could, any thought that enters my mind or enters psyche, I can just type that into Google and now there it is on the screen. Right. Um, so the, the interactivity between, you know, we went from the iron locomotive and, you know, these totally fixed objects that, that didn't interact with psyche except in their manufacture to now the computer screen where, where it's completely interactive with psyche except that, you know, it just can't come out as a three-dimensional being and, you know, walk into the room yet. <laughs> but they're yes. working on that as well. Hmm. But I think that this is just a, um, I shouldn't say just, maybe the technological way will turn out to be the key way that we get there. But we are working on a program while we are fraying that fragile organic tether that's holding us to the corporeal world and and, and doing everything we can to put swords of Damocles over our head and threaten (laughs) the fragile organic matrix that keeps our bodies alive. At the same time, we are... uh, incredibly empowering ourselves in the ability to exteriorize psyche. And it may be that in some organic way that that process exponentiates. And it's sort of like uh, Terence, I think, suggested that, you know, the, the way out would be in rather than up. You hmm. know, and, and the kerosene-fired, you know, booster rockets, you know, out into the mostly sterile darkness of space, you know, and the hope to, you know, while traveling less than the speed of light, find some inhabitable planet. Yeah, you know? possible with that. Yeah. Right, I mean, it, 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 it's, there seems, it seems like a pretty desperate um, solution at the moment, but the escape into the dream time, you know, uh, in the way that the Australian Aborigines recognized mm-hmm. uh, that this, this was really, the, for them, the core level of reality. And basically, um, I believe that... Uh, Every incarnation, it's like the heart has an expansion and a contraction, the systole and the diastole. Mm-hmm. We have the waking time and we have the dream time. Yes. And in the dream time, the relationship between externality and psyche is is different. There's a different physics of reality, and but it's not absolutely different. But here's what the difference is. In, in the dream time, everything is a synchronicity, unless your dreams are invaded by outside entities, which is another story. Mm, but Yeah, we may talk a little bit about that later. So. Right. But um, basically, everything in the dream world, in the dream environment of, of a dream that your psyche creates, is a reflection of psyche. And so, therefore, everything is a perfect synchronicity. It's a perfect parallelism. Um, some people could say, well, it's not a synchronicity because it's causally created. But... Um, but there, there is this parallel between inner and outer. Now, when that happens in the waking time, we call it a synchronicity, and it seems r- remarkable to us in some way. But um, in the dream time, and this may also be the same physics that the UFOs seem to obey, uh, psyche and soma are, are much more closely bonded together as they would be in a futuristic extrapolation of virtual reality. 
So this is, is a core will, and this will expresses itself even in things like body image disorders and so forth, where we rebel against the limitations of the corporeal body. We want our bodies to be as plastic and shape-shifting as our technology is becoming. Mm. And so, you know, people undergo the surgeon's knife and <laughs> tattoo and pierce themselves in, in, in very painful and laborious efforts to try and get this very stubborn and unyieldingly, you know, mortal corporeal version 1.0 body to be as shape-shifting and plastic as our computer screens are. Um, but it, it's not very easy for us. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting one, and I think that maybe we could talk a little bit more about this relationship between humans and technology uh, and tools, and also, the, and, and, and also how close it's now getting to the body. Uh, I had uh, this gentleman on last week on the program. His name is Alan Goldstein, and he's a, uh, an expert in molecular biology, but also nanobiotechnology. He builds small synthetic living organisms, right? And, I mean, it's outrageous what they're actually doing. That's why I, had, I read the story earlier about, about how scientists were protesting the Bush administration uh, because they're anti-science or something like this, which they may very well be, but, but, but my point is that it's certainly not stopping anybody from performing their science because the stuff that's happening um, in, in nanotechnology and, and, and this, this amazing uh, synergy between nano and biotechnology is outrageous. And, and it, it's also quite frightening, uh, y you know, if, if, it, if it, again, like any technology, Jonathan, if it gets utilized with the wrong intention, if you know what I mean. I do. And, in fact, uh, strangely enough, it's, it's odd we've kind of come to this point because, and, and you said it, it's frightening because I was just thinking while you were talking, it was remind me of the very numinous dream that I had last night, and more numinous than any I've had probably in a, in a few months. Huh. And in the dream, I'm... I'm walking up to where people have gathered around what's supposed to be an alien, and there's some kind of glowing, shape-shifting being, and, and, but there also seems to be nanotechnology involved as well, and the things I experience are just you know, beyond my ability to language right now and mm -hmm. the kind of strange forms that it took on, but that also seemed quite threatening. It was both uh, wonderful and terrible and, and terrifying at the same time, but it was clearly like the, the anomaly uh, right there in, in front of me, and um, we uh, technology, the magic of technology is a potent form of magic. It's becoming more and more etherealized and more and more alchemical and, right. and, and psychic, like right. as we right. discover quantum mechanics and start anticipating building quantum computers and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, um, there are other types of magic that, that happen more on the organic plane through the psyche itself, and I think that there are a lot of rediscoveries and, and, and new breakthroughs in, in that area as well. So I think there's going to be a hybridization of the, the technos magic, as my friend Ron Lampard calls it, technos, um, and of uh, more organic or more purely psychic, um, as in the sense of the psyche, uh, magic. Yeah. And, you know, um, you remind me of when, when, you, were, when you mentioned that... Uh, the output of uh, uh, of all of that uh, production or whatever, just the mass of it was significantly less over that period of time in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, and now they're beginning this whole idea of molecular manufacturing, right? Where, I mean, at that point, you don't need any raw material, basically, other than just the air, you know, because they're building from using atoms, and they can just organize 
atoms any way they like into molecules. So if you want to build a bridge, like you say, you don't have to you don't have to mine the iron. Now you just build it from the, from from molecules. You know what I mean? And so now the weight. Oh, I mean, as far as the weight that you're creating versus the weight that you use, is, it becomes an, an infinitesimal equation. Well, and basically. You know, a non-technical way of saying it is is they're tapping into the source code of the matrix. Right, and it's, my God, Jonathan, who was it? Was it Arthur Clarke who said that, uh, and you mentioned magic, he said that any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic. Right, and, and, you know, that it's just a core will, and we see it on every possible level um, of the human species to break the code. It's happened with DNA in, in just in recent decades. It's happened with, you know, understanding the underlying, like Noam Chomsky's work on transformational generative grammar. What are the underlying assembly language beneath our ability to uh, speak and think in words? Everywhere we look, human beings are racing to break the code before we become extinct. Hmm. And I think that just to choose an example of that um, basic mythological idea in, in popular culture, uh, there was a um, uh, one of the Star Trek movies, uh, one of the early ones with uh, still had Admiral Kirk and William Shatner playing Admiral Kirk right. around the, the, the bridge of uh, one of a starship and a uh, Federation starship and there's everything is getting chaotic. There's a young Vulcan woman who is the, the captain and she seems to be hopelessly outgunned by Klingons or whatever and, and um, everything she does uh, does not seem to be working and suddenly the whole bridge seems to blow up as if the ship has been destroyed and then suddenly the smoke clears and um, Captain Kirk walks on or Admiral Kirk, I think he's been promoted now and, and we come to understand right at the beginning of the movie that well this was a simulation it was like one of those uh, battlefield simulators oh, that yeah, pilots yeah, train yeah, on yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Vulcan captain who's a, a cadet I guess a protest that the scenario that she was given was completely unwinnable. Yeah, unfair, yeah. And so Kirk says, well, uh, that's exactly right. It was called something like the Obi-Washi scenario. It was, scenario it was called the Kobayashi Kobayashi. Maru. Kobayashi Maru, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I remember it now. Okay. And um, basically, it was just to test the cadets to see how they would handle that stress of a total no-win scenario. And only one captain, had a cadet captain, had ever solved... Uh, that scenario, and that was, was Kirk himself. And what he did was he reprogrammed the simulation computer. And I think that that is a core metaphor, a core like little mythologem or something of, of, what, of what we need to do and what we are doing is we, we are creating for ourselves the Kobayashi Maru. We are creating a complete no-win scenario uh, for the uh, life on this planet. And the only way that we can, which is the pressure that we need, to tap into the simulation computer and, and change things on that fundamental source code basis. Wow, wow. Ooh, all right. Well, um, where do you see us on the timeline? You know, we, uh, re regardless of, uh, you know, Terrence's ideas of, of novelty, uh, uh, ingression and all this stuff, where do you see us along this line? I mean, to me, regardless of, of, of the prophecy behind it, it just seems it there is to me this tangible feeling of things speeding up and, and, and also a tangible feeling of man, something's got to give. You can't sustain all this stuff much longer, it seems like. Right. Well, the metabolism of the species is definitely heating up. And, and I definitely am on the same page with, with Terrence with that. And I mean, it's one of the most obvious things that we can see, like what Art Bell calls the quickening. Right. 
But um, I also kind of agree with Terrence that when people would tell him, you know, this is the end of the world, he'd say, like, no, this is the tea party before the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was the really, time to chat about it, you know? Yeah, really, if you, if you consider that, that since World War II, now, you know, 60 years ago, that a nuclear weapon has not been used in anger, like, mm-hmm. it, it seemed when, when I was growing up, I mean, we just assumed that Third World War was right around right the corner. Right around the corner, yeah. And and so it's if anything that, that seems a little bit miraculous is how things keep merrily rolling right along. It's the war here, a famine there, but it's still all going. We have more people alive now than all the human beings that have ever died, according to some estimates. It's, it's amazing, Jonathan. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I have a close friend whose name is Kent Stedman, and he runs a website that's called CyberspaceOrbit.com. Uh, At any rate, yeah, I heard a bit of him on the birthday show. I think. Yeah, he's outrageous. He's, he's, a, he's a wizard, you know, a true, a true shaman. But uh, at any rate, a long time ago, I, I said something to him. I was sort of despairing about, uh, uh, interestingly enough, it was probably during the Pakistan-India uh, nuclear uh, evolution that happened, what, now back in 98, I think it was. You know, and everybody was flipping out then about, uh, you know, new members to the nuclear club. And, of, right. course, of course, we just had the, the, the North Korean... Uh, guys do it uh, yesterday or the day before or whatever. But anyway, I said to Kent, I said, oh my gosh, you know, I, I said, you know, I just wonder, Kent, who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the one to, to push the button and who's going to be the one to launch the whole thing, right? right. And, and he said, well, you know, Mike, he said, same thing as you. He said, you know, I've been watching this since 1940. He's like, you know, and to me, he said, the bigger question is not who's going to blow it apart, it's who's holding it all together. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's actually kind of uncanny, just like there was a kind of reverse descent into novelty uh, when, you know, New Year's Eve of uh, uh, 2000, because it was like the mouse that roared, like there was absolutely not like one Y2K anything happening anywhere, not one terrorist explosion, nothing. It was, it was notable in uh, its lack of catastrophe. Yeah, it's really true, and everyone was expecting, my God, the end of the whole thing, myself included. I was all ready for, you know, the computers to stop and everything, so... Well, one thing we've heard from from some of the most reliable uh, UFO researchers have, have even confirmed this. In fact, this is what got Linda Moulton Howe, the mm-hmm. famous paranormal uh, investigator, and, and crop uh, and, and especially into crop circles and animal mutilations, is mm-hmm. where she was, uh, you know, especially a pioneer. And, and she got started in that, I believe, because her brother was in the military mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. had something to do with, with nuclear missile silos yeah. and was there when, when UFOs came over and beamed energy and, and, shut and changed down. the targeting computers. And, like, shut the whole place down or something, right? Right, and the Soviets have reported this as well. Uh-huh. So we don't know that, for example, um, something like this might not have occurred except for some sort of intervention. Right. Just listening to somebody who wrote yeah, a book called... Red Star Rogue about how a group of KGB, a faction of the KGB, tried to launch a nuclear missile at, uh, at, at the U.S. in a way that would make it appear that it was launched by the Chinese, hoping <laughs> that we would take each other out, and, and that somehow that went wrong, or they just didn't have certain fail-safe co- codes or it absolutely would have happened. And right. we know that, you know, uh, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, just how close we came. Mm-hmm. So you almost have to wonder... And in, in Arthur C. Clarke's absolutely visionary novel, uh, Childhood Zen. Childhood Zen, wonderful, yeah. Uh, the, the, it, the extraterrestrials, the overlords, uh, they're called in, in this case, uh, that's one of the first things they do is through some sort of technological magic, if you launch even an artillery shell or a bullet, it's re- returned to the sender. So mm-hmm. that 
the incentive goes out of it. So we don't know that, that there might not be some force interested in our evolution uh, that is intervening. Even if it's a force that's coming from the psyche. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's extremely uh, likely because we, we now have some really substantial evidence that the psyche, and especially the collective psyche, which has tremendous inertial power behind it, uh, really does shift things apparently on the quantum mechanical level. Uh, we know that you know, in the individual case with the, the whole wavical uh, paradox and so forth, but the experiments at, at, at Princeton and the work of Dean Radin uh, with the Princeton eggs, you're probably familiar mm-hmm. with this, and the Global Consciousness Project, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that show that there seemed to be a, a shift in the quantum mechanical background where you know, r- random number generators deviate from randomness when mm-hmm. there are collective emotionally powerful events like the reading of the O.J. Simpson verdict or the hours before 9-11. Yeah, amazing stuff, actually, yeah. So um, th- this idea that, um, you know, it circles back to what we were talking about before, that that's, there is no firewall between psyche and soma. Huh. And um, the human uh, collective dream is um, occurring with its own temporal momentum. And I don't try and anticipate that in terms of a specific time frame. You know, most of the efforts in that direction have been disastrous failures. So we are sometimes still in the Tea Party before the end of the world. It's a rather nervous Tea Party. But it is also uh, in a time of incredible privilege. I, I always yeah. feel amused yeah. by people who think like, oh, you know, how can you bring a child into this world? We live in such dark times. Like, uh, wh- when would you have preferred to incarnate in the last 6,000 years that, that wasn't also dark? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Stephen Dedalus, the, the James Joyce character, yeah. said, history is the nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. Mm-hmm. I know Terrence quoted that as well. Uh, this is the best time to be alive in history. Uh, it's the most novelty. Just look at the, the Internet alone should compensate us for uh, so many things if we're interested in, in, in learning new things. Oh, and my gosh. It's, talk about a tool, you know. It, it's absolutely amazing. There's never been uh, another tool to remotely compare with it. And, and basically, I try and focus people, and this is why the, the countdown to 2012 thing is actually very harmful to people spiritually, and, and John Jenkins uh, agrees with this as well, because it's binding you into linear time. Hmm. Now, for one thing, all of us are guaranteed a singularity and guaranteed an event horizon, whether the collective event horizon happens five minutes from now or in 2012 or in 2200 or uh, you know, thousands of years from now. Uh, because we're all going to die. And that is an, an event horizon. I think of it more as an emergence, potential emergence rather than an emergency. I have a very positive mm-hmm. view of it. But it, it is an absolute rupture of plane and an absolute um, punctuation of our present equilibrium. And you're guaranteed that. So uh, since you're guaranteed it, um, you know, there, there, you don't have to, every day needs to be important and to be lived as if it's your last. If you're counting down to a vacation or when you get off of your, you know, when, when it uh, hits 5 o'clock and you can go home and, and watch cable, any of these types of postponement of aliveness uh, always take you into a, a sick relationship to time and into the, in a descent into uh, a linear time matrix. And the whole idea of 2012, what John Jenkins describes it, Right. As the center of time, right. the, not the end of time. From, yeah, removal from linear time, too. A right. return to exactly. cyclical or natural time. Yeah. All right, look, uh, we're a little bit past the top of the hour here. I've got to get uh, a break in here, so let's take a quick one, all right? Excellent. 
All right, Jonathan, hang in there. Everybody, Jonathan Zapp on the web, zapporacle.com. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. And it's uh, just a few minutes after 1 o'clock now on the 10th of October, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM on the web, as always, at kopn.org. And here's another song from Ism. This one's called Fittingly. Can't explain. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few with Jonathan Zapp.
Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's Mike. That was Can't Explain, another song from ISM from their CD, Monkey Underneath. All right, uh, let's get back to Jonathan Zapp, and let's get the website out real fast one more time quickly, www.zapporacle.com. And also, uh, from here on out, you can always link over to Jonathan's site from my site over at MikeHagan.com. All right, Jonathan, hi. Glad to be back. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so um, I got all kinds of things written down, and I got a few that I've circled though. So uh, we've we let's close up on this 2012 thing a little bit, and maybe you could talk a little bit about John Jenkins' work, and because uh, you've collaborated with him a little bit, and I don't know, maybe just uh, uh, some closing thoughts on, on on what you think that the, the whole mythology of that whole thing is about. Well, I think that that if you take the um, more general theory of the perennial philosophy and the cycling of ages uh, that so many different cultures mm. all seem to uh, recognize and uh, take the, the galactic alignment that, that John Jenkins uh, discovered is related to Mayan uh, calendrics and their whole cosmology at the, the ancient site of the Zappa, it's basically telling us that, that we are in a place that we have all kinds of confirmation that we actually are at a place where, where the cycle of densification is, is turning. Mm-hmm. And um, we are now entering a, a time when um, there's a spiritualization going on, just like we've been talking about the spiritualization of matter that's occurring all around us, you know, as, as close by as the, the computer screen and mm-hmm. the technology that people are listening to our disembodied voices coming over invisible waves. Right, right. You know, this is the spiritualization of, of matter. And, it's, and uh, so there seems to be tremendous evidence to confirm that we are at the cusp of that cycle. And as far as knowing the exact time, to me that, that's anti-novelty because right, if you right. want, want a novel story, you don't want to tell the audience that, like, okay, on page uh, uh, 212, that's when you're going to have the turning point in the story. It's, it's better for us not to know. Right, right. Surprise is what it's all about. That's, what that, that's how is. we get free will, is where, where there, I think there are formed and unformed elements in the future and in time, so, so that the, the unformed ones are what uh, give room for free will. So roughly, you know, that cusp, uh, of a turning point lining up with the center of the galaxy um, it may be valid, but that but it's, there's more room for novelty if it's not so um, hardwired or determined that it has to happen at a specific moment or something like that. Okay, all right, cool. Um, let's see. Before we get too far, we've got another 50 minutes or so, but I want to make sure that I get this in. And it's sort of a left turn from where we've been, but you're doing some amazing work with regard to women. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe just start off with some of your uh, the projects that you've got uh, that you're talking about on the website. Well, it's it's a subject that I entered almost reluctantly because at, at first I never thought I would write about it. Cause I'm like, well, who am I to write about this? There should be a, a woman writing about it. But because I've done a dream interpretation for people for 25 years or so, I, I noticed these themes coming up in the dreams of women. And some of it is about uh, a metamorphosis happening uh, in women as we, we reach the end of 6,000 years or so of patriarchal history. And, and so there, you know, what women would have been and what men would have been, for that matter, without all that patriarchal influence right. is something that's still so unformed. 
and, and that's why Terrence talked about the archaic revival and related his work to somebody who did a wonderful show with Rianne Eisler. Sure, sure. Um, but I think that rather than just being uh, a revival, or re- certainly I don't think when Terrence said revival of the archaic, that he meant a repetition of it. Hmm. It's, it's going to hybridize with all the, the changes that have occurred uh, since then. Right, sort of an incorporation of those ideas with current whatever technology, etc., Right, and, and I think that, um, and, and with new mythological forms as well, and I think that even the, the subject of what's happening uh, to women expands out to a change in the nature of, of gender and our relationship to sexuality and eros, and I've written about this and related it uh, to the Tolkien mythology, even in a document called Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, Androgyny, Alchemy, Evolution, and the One Ring. Good, because I want to talk about the Tolkien mythology after this. That's great. Right. Okay. So, so remind me to segue into that at some point. Right. And uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that if any core human attribute changes, and right now we are seeing uh, fundamental changes in all kinds of, of core human attributes, you know, even if it's just our tool using and our technology, any change in any one of them is, uh, will automatically mean a change in all of them. Right. The butterfly so, effect is real. Absolutely. So it, it just stands to reason. Right? I mean, if you change a core attribute of a particular human being, you're going to change everything else about them as well. Right. So we should expect to see fundamental changes in our relationship to gender, arrows, sexuality, technology, language, communication, money, nation-state, and so on and so forth. And in fact, we are. And I think that um, we are in, in moving with that cycle of change from the Iron Age to the Gold Age, and here, here's a way of connecting it to women's issues, to um, gender issues, and our relationship to Eros. Um, if we relate it to the Tolkien mythology, well, the whole thing about uh, the, the, the quest is to destroy the ring. Now, for the first 20 years or so of relating to the, the Tolkien books that were such a, a huge influence on me as they were on, on lots of other people, My obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, I was always queasy about the meaning of the ring and the fact that it had to be destroyed. And I related it um, in a somewhat negative way that maybe this had to do with Tolkien's Orthodox Catholicism because here is this divine object that, um, you know, a cir- circular ring, gold in color, and so forth, and yet it has to be destroyed. And the ring, just to see its divine aspect, the, I had a certain period where I, uh, maybe only 25 minutes, this is usually how these things happen, it was actually the like the fifth or sixth time seeing one of the, the new, the first new Tolkien movie. Mm-hmm. And it was maybe the, the first time watching it on a big screen TV in the extended version or something. But some, somewhere in the first, the beginning of the movie, there was this whole cascade of insights. And I saw first that the ring was a kind of multi-level uh, yin-yang because um, it, it was feminine in that it's a ring. It's coedal-like. It, 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 it could be waiting to be penetrated by a finger and so forth. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, it's also gold, which is the color of the solar masculine, of the highest masculine function, right, the, the sun and sun. yang element and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that also, like the black yin dot and the white yang and the white yang and yang dot and the black yin, that there was this way it kind of folded over because in its shape, which, which had to do with the realm of um, heaven in the I Ching sense of the realm of pure forms, that it was in that aspect that it was feminine in this um, masculine dimension, uh, so to speak, archetypal masculine.
masculine, and in its materiality, which would be the connection to the feminine in the realm of earth, you know, from the I Ching or Chinese point of view, mm-hmm. its materiality was solar or masculine. Right. So it was this perfect, like, yin-yang symbol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why did it have to be uh, destroyed? destroyed. Right. In the past, I compared it to the uh, um, Christian taboo on masturbation, strangely enough, because... <laughs> There you are kind of sealing the circle within yourself. You are both the alpha and the omega, the yin and the yang yourself. And so that had to be prohibited because human beings couldn't have that completeness. Um, and so it seemed like maybe it was coming from something regressive. But then in that 20 or 25 minute period, the meaning kind of folded over and I saw that the key to the ring was its externality. It was the fact that Sworn had uh, put all of his power and magic into this external object. Right, into a material object. Right. Externalized and, something, yes. Okay. And what I also saw, especially in the way that Soren was depicted in the movie, um, was that he represented uh, complete masculinity with, with no feminine whatsoever. Right, right. And, and so if you think about um, Tolkien, I mean, Jung's early vision that he had as a child where he saw the solar phallic power, he, he entered this tree-like cave, and he saw this pillar on a throne, and it was surrounded by an aura of light. And uh, it turned out that it was a, a penis with a giant eye on top. And it was a picture of, like, the solar phallic uh, deity. And so in the Tolkien mythology, there are the two towers. And each of these two phallic towers are connected with a, um, <clears throat> a solar phallic uh, entity. Um, the, the, the solar Jungsa masculine power is divided into the chthonic or lower phallic, which would be associated with the, the masculinity of a, of a bull or a linebacker. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the Urukai orc that uh, uh, Saruman pulls out of the earth, right. uh, he's very masculine in a physical sense, but he's much more feminine than, than Saruman because he is like of the earth. You see him come out of like this yeah, out of that like goo and mud and almost. Mud and, yeah. Right, so he, he's, the, he's the lower phallic element, but Saruman is the solar phallic element. He has a mind of metal and wheels and cares not for living things. Mm-hmm. So he lives the trees high, you know, on this tower. Right, tears the trees from the earth and burns them. And right, but even um, but in the in the he is the feminine of the pair because Soren is so uh, completely removed from the feminine that he no longer has a body, as conventionally understood, and exists as a red eye of flame mm-hmm. on top of this tower. Right, right. So right, much like you envision. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you in a state of complete masculine polarity, you tend to give your uh, magic away to something that carries the opposite principle that has to exist outside of you. So, for example, to relate ground this now into personal psychology, if I am a guy that has no connection to my inner feminine, then what happens is I get completely possessed by what Jung called the anima. I'll, I'll see some beautiful woman, for example, and um, I'll think that she holds the, the key to my soul. And I will turn all my power over to that outside object. Mm. And so in the uh, Iron Age, the age of densification, it's the age of uh, turning over more and more power to the outside object. Mm. And this could take the form of the romantic object of infatuation and obsession that we see pathologizing in our culture, like with the themes of just the last week with all the things related to adult predators on on, on children and adolescents. Mm -hmm. And also we see it in the reliance on technology instead of uh, the soul. 
And in Tolkien talked about this a great deal. He was very anti-machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, like one interviewer once asked him, you know, what makes you tick? And Tolkien replied very dryly, well, I don't tick because I'm not a machine. And, um, and, he, and he talked to his son, Christopher, who was an RAF pilot, uh, you know, uh, that it was a shame that we had to use Mordor gadgets uh, to fight Mordor. Right. And so uh, the reliance on the outside object characterizes our age, whereas in Middle-earth we see the Middle-earth is also at a cusp, just as we are, uh, between two ages. And, and the new age will begin when the ring is cast into the cracks of doom. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the cracks of doom, a place where even the densest object can be irrealized, and there's a density theme going on there. And, and Jay Widener had realizations about this, too. He also yeah, he wrote, wrote a wonderful piece on, on uh, the Tolkien. Absolutely. Approach. That was a big inspiration for me, and I kind of picked up on, on his piece and something I wrote called, um, um, let's see, what was it called The Mutant Versus the Machine. Yeah, it's a great piece that you wrote, actually. And oh, Thank you. And so the cracks of doom are kind of like a black hole because it's a place where even the densest matter can be irrealized. Mm-hmm. And as, as if you were approaching the event horizon, of a black hole, as uh, uh, Frodo gets closer to the cracks of doom, the ring gets heavier. Right. Okay, so a black hole is a place where matter can be irrealized, like like with the cracks of doom. And it turns out that at the center of our galaxy, the very center that we're aligning with, is believed to be a black hole. And in fact, Mayan epigraphers, and John has written about this in, in, in the appendices of his books, uh, they had a Mayan glyph that means black hole. And it, it, I believe that they also located at the center of the galaxy. And so it seemed, there seems to be this strange parallelism in the, in the Tolkien mythology and the cycle that we're in right now. I think he was giving us a distant mirror of um, being on a cusp of two ages in his trilogy. And I think that we can ground it in our own personal lives by throwing the ring into the cracks of doom. And that means returning to our own original androgynous wholeness and not turning our soul over to an object of romantic infatuation, uh, to a physical object, toward um, you know, uh, a focus on the material world itself. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense, uh, like the Gnostics had, about there being something, even though they're often accused of being regressive dualists and, and this type of thing. They recognize something delusory about the, the, the material realm, much like uh, in the movie The Matrix. And in the Tolkien mythology, uh, this is also the case. We learn about this in the Cimmerillion, or actually not even in the Cimmerillion, in some of the notes that, that Tolkien left behind that his son Christopher would later organize into several volumes. And one of the volumes is called Morgoth's Ring. And in that... Um, background mythology, which the, the, the trilogy is just a tiny slice, right. there's an evil being uh, that's uh, equivalent to the Gnostic Demiurge mm-hmm. uh, called Morgoth, and Soren is merely an, you know, an offshoot of, of Morgoth. And uh, Morgoth was involved in the creation of Arda, um, which was Tolkien's word for Earth. And so in the original thought forms that even created Earth, uh, he was involved in like singing that cosmic song, and so uh, in his notes, uh, Tolkien writes that um, all of Middle Earth was Morgoth's ring. There were there were dark threads woven into the whole tapestry, hmm. and so uh, this relates to uh, 
um, the idea of, of 2012 and lining up with the galactic center and tossing the ring into the cracks of doom. This may be the time when we need to irrealize and melt down that densification, uh, that turning the divine object into a physical thing in the outside world. Uh, this may be the time when we need to irrealize that and break into the source code of zeros and ones and be able to create new forms out of the, the cracks of doom, out of the what an alch- alchemy, I guess, would be called the negredo. Right, right, and move toward the albedo, yeah. Okay, listen, uh, here's a related question that comes from uh, that comes from the web, uh, from the chat room here, okay? Sure. Uh, and, and, and I was going to ask you about virtual reality anyway, because we touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, but this is sort of related here. Um, and, and again, I'm going to sort of disregard any time frame. But the question is about, is about visible language. Uh, there have been a couple people that have brought up this idea of visible language. It's something that Terrence McKenna talked about as well. Mm-hmm. That, that visible language, whether, whether it was technologically assisted or whether it was brought on through... Uh, you know, an evolutionary shift because of endogenous uh, tryptamines in the brain or whatever, right? Or, or, or you ate six grams of mushrooms or whatever it was. Um, uh, what, what, do you make anything of that whatsoever, this idea of visible language and somehow of clarifying our means of communication, our, our, our means of language between one another? Well, it's, it's a direct hit, and I have to say you have a very tuned-in audience because um, that, that is something that uh, at the very first discovery of what I call the singularity archetype, it was totally tied up with this whole thing of a visible language and also with paranormal experiences that I had myself right at the same time. And this was one of the points of closest connection between the work that I started in the 70s and, and what I read um, in, in Terence McKenna's writings in the, in the 90s. Amazing. Okay. Um, and in fact, I've just produced a disc, which I, I finished so recently I didn't even get to send it to you, called A Logos Be Held. Huh. And it is all about um, uh, a more visual means of communication as, as uh, absolutely related to the, the uh, global telepathy, uh, what I call homo gestalt. Um, and that we are heading, to, we, we see all around us the development of this more visual means of communication. And, and look at the, what's happening with the Internet. And when you look at a computer screen, uh, everywhere you see that, that the environment is becoming more visual, whereas when we first started interacting with computers, we were like at the DOS prompt, typing in these little words and so forth. Right. And in the once visually anonymous um, uh, you know, places where people would gather on the web with these little name tags, now when I watch friends who are totally absorbed in playing World of Warcraft, and they have they create their own avatars. Right, everyone has their own image. And right, and it's called an avatar. And right. By, by the computer industry, and that actually comes from Hindu mythology. It means a spirit form descended into the flesh. Amazing. And so now they have a shape-shifting body, and regardless of what physical form they're in in their corporeal mortal version 1.0, um, they are able in the uh, virtual world, uh, World of Warcraft, for example, to create a, uh, a cybernetic body in any form that they, that their imagination can conceive. mentioned before this idea of singing the cosmic song and uh, there's another listener who brings up this idea that the Amazonian or other uh, 
shaman who sings songs uh, that aren't uh, particularly listened to but are seen. Right. Uh, so songs of the Iowascaros. Yeah, the Iowascaros and the Icaros that they sing. Right. And, and uh, Terence um, uh, recognized the significance of that, that um, they, were, they were having a, a visual telepathy. Mm-hmm. They were able to see these images uh, in common. And so the early anthropologists used to call ay- ayahuasca telepathine or something like yeah, that. Yeah, telepathine was, one of, was what harmaline was originally called, I think. Yeah, or harmine, one of those uh, beta-carbolines. Right, and we also see it occurring uh, without any... Um, ingestion of anything in the, in the rare but well-documented cases of mutual dreaming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there you have uh, two individual psyches joining each other in, in the dream time in a kind of virtual world that presumably both psyches are contributing to its generation. And there's a basic principle in, in, the, in investigating what's called the paranormal, but really all these words are kind of silly because supernatural. There's nothing outside of nature. This is just right. a, another bandwidth of the normal, but that we don't ordinarily um, experience society have see. a consensus about or something. Right, right, right. And there's a principle that William James, the great pioneering American mm-hmm. psychologist, came up with it that you know, all it takes to disprove the notion that all crows are black is one white crow. One white crow. So if there's even one instance of mutual dreaming, and of course there are many documented instances, and many have been reported to me, um, if there's any instance of a mother knowing remote from sensory information that her child is in trouble, very specifically, any of these things, um, if only one valid instance has occurred, that's, then it means that that's already part of the present human performance envelope. Right. So since, whether it's with ayahuasca or mutual dreaming or whatever, the fact that we can already exercise this ability to have a, um, a mutual telepathic bond where, where there's visual communication, it means we have the latent capacity for that. And I think that at our last great evolutionary event horizon, which I think was the development of language, that's what separates us from the other animals mm. on the planet, is our ability to think in words and so forth. Uh, you, don't, you can't have a single mutation come up with language. It's, it's a group phenomenon. So what I presume is that uh, this was developing as a latent capacity neurologically for a long time and maybe emerging, emerging episodically here and there. But at some point when the, maybe the whole genome of a particular hominid group was threatened, um, it, it erupted into a much more collective uh, reality. And so I think this ability, these abilities that are emerging episodically right now that are part of our latent capacity waiting to emerge are just waiting for certain trigger events to emerge in a greater exponential collective version. Amazing. All right, look, bottom of the hour, let's take a breather, okay? Okay. All right, everybody, we got Jonathan Zapp. We'll have him for another 20 minutes or so after the break here. So stick around. Amazing stuff, wonderful material and information coming from Jonathan. And uh, just a, a wealth of it on his website as well uh, at Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E dot com. Go over there and take a look around and... Uh, just, uh, there are all kinds of links that are embedded in there that take you off into all kinds of interesting little rabbit holes. So uh, so make sure you either make a note of it 
or bookmark it or something, but uh, take some time out after the program or sometime in the next week or so and uh, go over to zaporacle.com and check out what Jonathan is doing over there, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And if you want to see what I'm doing, you can always go on the web as well to MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com, and take a look around there as well, okay? This program will be up in the archives <clears throat> in the next 24 hours or so, as long as I don't have any technical difficulty, which I've actually been uh, quite fortunate uh, uh, lately in regards to the technology. We haven't had too much, uh, too many, too many troubles like we had a couple months ago. So it sort of ebbs and flows like these cycles of time, I guess. So anyway, okay, it's Mike. Uh, I won't waste any more of your time. We'll play another song here from Ism. We'll come back with Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Zapp in just a moment, okay? This one is called Out of the Way, and you better do it. Get out of the way because the train is rolling. You better get on it or get out of the way.
out of the way ism from Monkey Underneath. It's Michaelis to Radio Orbit. 1.42 in AM on the 10th of October. Jonathan Zapp with me from his home in Boulder, Colorado. As a matter of fact, I think, Jonathan, you're in Boulder, right? Yes. Hey, you know, I lived in Denver for 15 years, and I spent a lot of time in Boulder there. It's a great place. It great is. Nexus. It is. It's a wonderful place. And uh, believe it or not, Columbia, Missouri, where I'm at, is sort of uh, reminiscent of Boulder. It's very, uh, uh, it's a very neat little town here with a with, with a great university and a great faculty associated with the university, and and uh, and a really interesting, cool little downtown area. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So anyway, okay, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for sticking around, and uh, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. So uh, I've got a couple more for you here. Okay. Absolutely. Let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned earlier we were talking about dreams, and you said you know dreams are pure unless they're invaded by outside entities. You have this concept of mind parasites. I think it's one that sort of uh, not only is it interesting, I think it's important so people can recognize it, and then therefore uh, maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about defense against it once we get going here. So okay, and uh, I'm going to try and introduce it in a way to give it a little bit more uh, reasonableness, since it sounds very eccentric yeah. or as if it requires some great willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah, maybe talk about regular parasites first yeah. or something. So anyway, uh, go, go, go for it, A good it, place to start is with, with the regular parasites. Basically, we, we find three classic relationships uh, in nature of energetic transaction. There may be others, but three, these are three of the most classic. Um, predation, parasitism, and my favorite, symbiosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, actually, um, the most common type of organism on the planet are parasites. According to straight science, like National Geographic articles, they, they'll tell you that uh, parasites okay. outnumber all other organisms four or five to one. And in fact, every uh, organism, pretty much, or every um, certainly every mammal has uh, at least um, one parasite, and often those parasites uh, in turn have parasites, and sometimes those parasites have parasites. Like the mosquito is a parasite, but it carries another parasite within it, malaria. And so we live in a very parasite-ridden uh, world. It's okay. a very classic uh, relationship in nature. Now, uh, it is also possible uh, to discover a whole new dimension of life, and and to be astounded at how we were, how we missed this for for, for so long. And uh, the obvious example um, is the microbiological plane. Before a uh, E.V. Leeuwenhoek, who was a Danish shopkeeper, and I think 16. 32 or something like that, uh, discovered uh, or created a microscope that had the very well-ground lenses that was able to, for the first time, resolve uh, a microorganism. He saw a protozoa, which is probably a giant in the microbiological world. Right, well, right. until that exact moment, every culture was completely clueless about the whole microbiological realm. And then, when, and if you were to tell somebody in uh, you know 1631 that that your body is made up of 20 trillion separate organisms. You know, they would have, that would have been the most insane idea you could possibly have, have uttered. And when we would discover this new plane of life, we would discover that there wouldn't be just one or ten types of life. There would be this whole fantastic cryptozoology, and there would be the same classic relationships of predation, symbiosis, and parasitism going on in the microbiological realm. Mm-hmm. Well, right now, uh, Western fundamentalist materialism, uh, many people call scientism, is, as far as we know, the only 
substantial. I mean, every culture has recognized organisms living out on the energetic plane. Mm-hmm. Um, scientism has been the only denier of that. And so the study of disincarnate organisms and how they affect physical health in Ayurveda you know, is considered on a par with gynecology. <laughs> in, in Chinese medicine, of the many um, 500-something uh, acupuncture points or energy meridians, there's a certain number, maybe it's 32, that, mm-hmm. that has the prefix quay in front of it, which means a disincarnate spirit, mm-hmm. and those were identified as points where such disincarnate spirits could feed energy. So if there is a plane of energetic organisms, and every culture has said there is, and any culture is in trouble when it denies a whole realm uh-huh. of human testimony, as we once did with child abuse, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, we would expect to find, uh, if there is such a dimension of life, predators, parasites, mm-hmm. and uh, symbionts, and, uh, and, and in a whole variety of different forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there were parasites out there, in that dimension of life, they would be very interested in human beings because what is the most potent energy source on this planet? Well, it's human psychic energy and human sexual chi. That's what's dominating the planet at the moment. And so, of course, they'd be very interested in feeding off of that. And uh, no surprise, every culture describes energetic organisms that feed off of human energy. And they have different culturally bound names, like the Christians of the Middle Ages might have talked about the incubi and the succubi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but um, I noticed when in, in my 25 years or so of doing dream interpretation for people that many people would come to me with these very stereotyped uh, accounts. We talked. That's why I say that dreams can be invaded by other entities of these nighttime attacks. And what I noticed about these uh, attacks is that they were very stereotyped. They were very similar to each other and to ones reported from even the distant past. And they tended to be completely devoid of psychological content. And so while some Jungians would say, oh, these are, you know, um, archetypes or they are uh, constellations or complexes that, that uh, you know, seem to have an autonomous existence and so forth, and that, and so on. I, I wouldn't quite uh, agree with them in this case because if they were, I would expect to see them embedded with much more psychological content, and I don't. And I've had personal encounters uh, with these um, entities. And so uh, I think also looking out at human history, uh, there was a specific moment in my life when I started re-engaging the subject, and I happened to be doing some wilderness isolation, and a, a book I happened to have with me was a book of eyewitness accounts from history, and it began from back in the days of Troy, you know, all the way up to reports of uh, the Holocaust and, and even more contemporary events. Mm-hmm. And, and the cumulative impression I got reading these accounts was like, wow, like, you know, how over the top human darkness was, and it really culminated in the 20th century, you know, with reports, eyewitness testimony about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm and how over-the-top and sci-fi-like this world domination death cult would be. And then uh, with accounts of um, uh, Stalin's Russia and how uh, the KGB, um, you know, millions of of Russian citizens uh, were killed and sent to to gulags, Mm -hmm. and they they were innocent of even sins that only a hardline communist would have considered a sin. And, and often the people that were accusing them and that were uh, picking them up 
knew their knew of their innocence, but also not only that when they would um, you know when that knock would come on the door or when they would decide to to uh, send somebody off, they would often go to extravagant lengths to make it as terrifying and sort of surreal in its heart. For example, they would come up to somebody at the, at a bar, pretend to be their friends uh, for hours, um, almost you know like a some kind of Kafka novel. And, and then after, you know, this whole relaxed evening, suddenly turn on them and denounce them. Yeah. There was no need, need to do that. They could have taken the person off, you know, uh, with the most perfunctory gesture. But there seemed to be this desire to create horror and terror. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the whole, the, that whole mentality uh, and, and uh, the, the worldview of the, of the Nazi uh, regime was... A really strange one. It was people don't realize it wasn't just a bunch of crazy people. It was just a completely different view of the way the world worked, and they had a view, different view of science, and uh, and were working on different uh, technological advances, all kinds of different things. But they were just completely different than it was almost like a different species. Well, it was driven by the occult, and mm-hmm. and uh, there, there's been a lot of material uh, written about that. And and Hitler is somebody who. Um, really seem to be possessed by these forces. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems as if um, you know, he was driven by the will of another species that wanted to create as much horror and as, and as much pain uh, as possible because by all reports, that is the bandwidth of human energy that they can feed on. Mm-hmm. They need our, our pure chi. They, they don't have their own relationship to acquiring chi, and that's why they need to uh, get it from us, and they need us to step it down into sort of... Uh, the redder end of the spectrum, so to speak, hmm. uh, so that when you're in a peaceful, tranquil, meditative, contemplative state, that's not what they can feed off of your energy. They can feed off of dark desires and fear. Right. It, you know, and because, uh, sorry to jump in, but I mean, when I think of those peaceful, meditative, clear states or whatever, those are protected states. You know what I mean? I mean, you're Absolutely. safe. You're, you're safe in those places, and you know it. You know. Absolutely. But when you can be made afraid, and that's why it's interesting that, that now the historical eruption. Uh, or one of them is related to terrorism. Right, everything's about fear. Right, and and we see in some of the extreme Islamic fundamentalists this, again, the the over-the-top darkness where an Al-Qaeda spokesman, for example, said after 9-11, 9/11 that Americans should realize that um, as much as we love life, that their young men love death. <laughs> I mean, you can't get a more, uh, you know, no one's pulling the wool over eyes. That you, that you can't get a more explicit statement that that we're caught up with the NATOs. We're driven by this strange death force, mm. and we we see it happening in some of the uh, serial killers, for example, and in many other of the, of the strange, uh, weird human pathologies. We see evidence of this. All right, so. So what do we do? All right, so I mean, I think I think it's clear. In other words, there. We don't have to talk too deeply about it, but there are entities that exist on different planes. It makes perfect sense, just like they exist at the microscopic level and like they exist at our level. And, you know, interestingly enough, this whole thing about scientism, and I'll add that scientism is, you know, know, it's different than science. People need to recognize that. But scientism as as a philosophy or as a religion almost goes pretty in step with with religion or with uh, Western religion in particular, like Christianity, and it's interesting that the the angel 
you know, they're perfectly fine with things like angels or whatever. You know what I mean? But but you can't look at it in any other term. You know what I mean? Right. They they insist that you use their terms and you, you see it through their eye. And what, what both have in common, and like you started talking about scientism before I came on and about how uh, the emphasis on experts, something that, that, you, that Jung also protested against. And, and, and he, of course, was the ultimate generalist. You know, people mm-hmm. know more and more about less and less and mm-hmm. you know absolutely everything about nothing. And also of the deference to experts, where there's supposed to be an expert that knows more about your body than you do, and more about how you should make love and how you should raise your children and, and, and so forth. And so what scientism, one of the things that scientism and other fundamentalisms have in common is a disempowerment of the individual, mm. where their their original wholeness is is more and more lost to them because you need this scientist or bureaucrat or religious functionary to get the sacrament, to get the mm-hmm. gadget, to get whatever it is that becomes the power object outside of you. So you become ever more um, like a ring wraith, um, you know, obsessed by some object outside of you that can keep you spinning the wheels and machinery of, of society. And um, the whole recognition of, of the mind parasites, I think, may have to do with being on the cusp of these ages, that we are awakening to the things that have held us back, and it's interesting that that most of what we know about Gnosticism was discovered right after World War II with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, and and the Gnostics, um, their their system is all about um, parasitic entities Mm -hmm. uh, that they call the Archons, and and this is the the movie The Matrix was a a sci-fi version of of, of Gnosticism. Um, Was was Jung, did he consider himself, I mean, he certainly expressed Gnostic ideas. Well, Jung considered himself a Gnostic, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haller, who's a, a great uh, lecturer on, on Gnosticism, who you can, you can listen to for free on the Internet, I believe, um, wrote a book called The Gnostic Jung, and, and Jung was very much uh, uh, a Gnostic in, in many, many ways, even probably before he started investigating Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. And so they warned us about uh, parasitic deities uh, that would use religious ideologies uh, to manipulate us and that was happening when they were being persecuted by the Christians and it's happening today what do you know <laughs> you know uh, I have the uh, I just had the thought that as human beings I don't know if we're unique in this way but we seem to be able to act in all of the three different methodologies that you mentioned before we can be predators we can be parasites and we can be symbiotes. Absolutely. And it seems, at least just on my first sort of thought about it, that there aren't very many other species that I can think of that, that have the option to do those things. Right, and sometimes the difference between um, parasitism and, sim- and symbiosis is um, based on context and what your frame of reference is. And so it may turn out that the parasites become symbionts in a sufficiently large evolutionary context, they may be the thing mm. that, that uh, is an engine of novelty. And in mm. fact, in straight science, there's a group of um, a theory that originated with some biologists at Oxford, but that has gained tremendous credibility. It's called the Red Queen Hypothesis. And basically, um, it's based on parasitism, that the, the parasites are so um, uh, powerful and outnumber us and evolve so quickly themselves and are so intelligent and capable of incredibly complex strategies, you know, 
in their life cycle, jumping from you know four or five different animals in an unbelievably choreographed way. Where, you know, they'll control a much more complex animal's behavior to further their own life cycle. And they believed that the only way that we were able to, that you know, host species were able to keep up with this and survive, um, was uh, through sexual differentiation, that sex arose as a evolutionary countermeasure to parasitism. It was the only way to get enough genetic novelty. And so it's called the Red Queen Hypothesis because in Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. uh, when Alice is traveling with the Red Queen and, and she's running as fast as she can and she discovers they're not getting anywhere and the Red Queen says something like, well, here you see, you have to run you know, as fast as you can just to stay in one place. Right. So I think the fact that we may be awakening and the fact that we rediscovered the Nag Hammadi Library and the fact that the movie The Matrix was such a cultural milestone. Um, and talk about something that has collective numinosity. Oh, my gosh. It's unfortunate the, the, the Matrix movies that came after the first one, but, mm -hmm. but that first one grabbed so many people and had maybe the most memorable lines ever uttered in a movie. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a splinter in your mind you can't get out, and this is the world that's been pulled over mm -hmm. your eyes. So that these are ideas straight out of Gnosticism, and the Shorsky brothers were you know, consciously referencing the Gnostics. And in the technological sci-fi world of the Matrix, this computer network, which would be like the Archons, and in the third movie there's the Architect, mm -hmm. um, uh, are harvesting human energy, except somewhat implausibly they need human beings for thermal energy. Well they were that advanced, they would probably find other ways to produce heat. But right, that's Hollywood for you. So. Right, exactly. But the energy that we uniquely produce is our psychic energy and our sexual mm -hmm. gene, and, and they seem to be very, very interested in them, as do the, the, gray, the grays, the gray aliens people see. Some people suggest it might be the, the archons and another guys. Mm -hmm. And when they refer to Neo, um, some of the other characters that are enlightened to what's going on uh, refer to Neo uh, very... Um, disparagingly, over the cultural reference they shouldn't have been aware of, they call him Copper Top. <laughs> as, you know, he's just like an he's unconscious battery. battery. Right, right, right. And so I think we are at a time now where we may be waking up to what has been harvesting our energy, and that may be part of being on a cusp between you know, ages. And when we, we need to, that's part of the code that we need to crack. We need to see, you know, when you find you're, you're banging your head against the wall and there's something you just can't solve, usually means there's some critical piece of information that's missing. And when we look at the world predicament and the fact that, that no matter how many organizations we create and how, how much we try for <clears throat> world peace, that human savagery continues <coughs> absolutely excuse me, unabated so that you know, there would be a greater per capita war death rate in the 20th century than in any preceding century. When you, when you keep when your best efforts are continually defeated, you have to step back and ask yourself, could there be some unknown piece of information, some X factor um, in this equation that, that is why I cannot figure it out? And so this is what I'm proposing as a possible X factor that accounts for some of this over-the-top darkness that we find in the human species. All right. Well, look, Jonathan, we're going to have to come back and talk about this stuff a little bit more because we are, believe it or not, at the end of our rope here. And... Uh, I wish we could go on. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you tonight. We'll have to do it again. Thanks so much for making the space available. Yeah, it's awesome. And um, I'll, I'll talk to you off the air. And uh, um, thanks very much for your contribution. It's amazing that you've brought a lot of things together. And it's an amazing time that we're in the middle of, Jonathan. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm with you fully. I think it's a privilege. And you just got to be paying attention, you know? 
Thanks for Radio Orbit. <laughs> Thank you for appreciating me. I appreciate it, John. Okay, take care of yourself, uh, Jonathan, and we will talk again soon. Everybody, there you have it, Jonathan Zapp. One more time on the web at ZappOracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E dot com. And we'll definitely talk with Jonathan again. Uh, let's see, speaking of being at the end of my rope, we'll get a quick one in here uh, from ISM at the end of the show here. Come on back and listen next week. I'll do an open lines, open chat show. We'll catch up on news. I'll tell you a few things that have been happening in my life. And we'll uh, have Jan, er- uh, Jan Irvin the week after that and then Kent Stedman for the Halloween show on the 30th. All right, one more time, big thank you to Jonathan Zapp and uh, on the web, zapporacle.com. And you can hear this radio program and share it with your friends uh, sometime tomorrow afternoon. I'll have this up in the archives, okay? All right, everybody, thanks. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Stick around for Cheryl Clapton. She's always got good stuff coming for you in the next couple hours. So strong